0: So it's, it's nice to meet all of you, those who I haven't met yet. And I'm a big fan of wisdom and the Sages and uh, really love Kashtuba Prabhu. So he called me up since we just happened to be also here in London at the same time and thought it would be nice to do something together as it always is.
1: I always like to give you credit, too, because actually Wisdom of Sages, in one sense, it's born from your encouragement. Because, um, Rosheth Prabhu was always, like, encouraging people. You know, a lot of people, when they start to practice Krishna Bhakti, they get a set of the Shri Bhagavatam. It's a very large book. It's many volumes. But often it's just kind of like, um, it's something that you get because you're supposed to get and then it sits there on the shelf. <laughs> you know? And even, even myself, like, it was, um, It was something that I would read, but I was almost using it more as reference than as like a daily practice. And um, by his encouragement, my wife and I just said, okay, let's read 80 verses a day. If you read 80 verses a day, do you know how long it takes you to get through?
0: Half a year. Yeah,
1: that's right. In six months, you read the entire thing. I said, okay, we'll read 80 verses a day. And my wife and I were doing that and we were just like, every day, we are just like, this is incredible. We're just like, you know, the, the Shri Bhakta, It says, through, in many places throughout, it says if you just regularly hear this, it says it, it mentions how Krishna enters into the ears, sits down on the lotus of the heart, and purifies it. You know, and, the, and you begin to feel your life change. And I think as as practitioners, we're hearing this many times, but not really having. Sometimes we don't even have the faith to say, well, well if that's what it says. That's what I'm going to do. But when you actually do it it actually does change your life. And, and so therefore, when we started doing this podcast every day, suddenly there were like thousands and thousands of people here, I about time every day, and thousands of people that are feeling their lives changing and it all came from your encouragement. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Um,
1: so, so I thought, let's just start. I, I'd like to share a few things before we start.
0: Do you mind? Oh, not at all. Could you hold that up?
1: Yeah, hey, why don't we bring the lights up? Thank you. Okay, everybody. How's everybody doing? Ready? Got a few more people here. <laughs> um, before I speak, I always like to say that um, I don't. I'm not really here to convince you of anything. Um, I don't see that as my job. I'm really just trying to represent something, and. Uh, Present the opportunity to engage with some thoughts, some thoughts from an ancient time, from other people, um, some some special thoughts that have survived the test of time. You know, so much so that um, things that were written down thousands of years ago, uh, people are still finding very relevant. At least some people are finding very relevant uh, in their lives. And so, um, if I That having said that, if I speak in a certain way that uh, takes certain things for granted, like I might speak about reincarnation as if it's a fact. I'm not trying to impose that thought on you, Um, but just um, trying to represent a certain tradition as accurately as I can. Is that all right? I'm good with that? Okay. And I'd also say i like to keep things informal when I speak, which means that... um, I'm happy to take questions at any point. If there's anything that I'm saying that you don't understand, if there's any terminology that I use, or if it's going a little too fast or something. We have some time here together, so uh, we can slow it down. And please don't feel inhibited to raise your hand um, if you have a question or if something I said uh, needs some further explanation. Is that okay? Okay. So where I wanted to start um, are the 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 theme or the title of our get together today is our minds are just computers and other yoga insights and i really just wanted to focus on one idea or right? just one thought uh well, one idea that it, it branches in many ways for sure but just one concept that could potentially be so profound that it could improve our lives change our lives um, make our lives come alive in a way that they may not have before. I'm going to ask the question. Um, how many of you would like a vibe, would like to live a very broad, like vibrant dynamic spiritual life and let me define what I mean by that because I don't want to be vague when I say that but a life wherein you felt able to pass through, the ups and downs that come with living in a body and living in this world. its we, we all know some days things are looking bright and then the next day it may change. Some days there's pleasure and happiness comes our way and then even very quickly we might find ourselves in a situation that's very stressful or even painful. And we see that that's how this world is. It's going up and down and up and down all the time. When I say a vibrant spiritual life, one part of what I mean is to be able to pass through that in Whether it's sunny today and stormy tomorrow, that in one sense I'm unchanged by it. In one sense I can pass through it without being rocked by it. Um, By spiritual, vibrant spiritual life, I mean being able to understand that every living being that I meet, not only are they very special, and I can see that, but also I understand that we have a similarity. on a a level that's, even though we may have external differences, I could know and feel, not even just theoretically, but I could really feel it, that that, that this person is my brother, that this person is my sister, that that there's no doubt in my mind. And that gives me the ability to be kind to every person that I meet, even if they're not so kind to me. But to be on that spiritual level where I don't feel offended by them, I don't feel disturbed by them, I, I feel this commonality, I feel this brotherhood with every living being. You know? And by vibrant spiritual life, I also mean the idea that um, although I find pleasure through external things, I might find pleasure through food, I might find pleasure through a comfortable home, there's sexual pleasure, there's there's different types of entertainment and so on. And, and it's not that these things are necessarily good or bad. But I can recognize that the pleasure that comes through them is also the nature of this world, that it's up one minute and down the next, right? That pretty much everything that gives us some external pleasure also is capable of giving us some pain, even if it's just from the loss of what we've gained. And that I, I come to a deep realization that really my very nature Is happiness. Underneath it all that I've been prone to search for happiness through external things and then but as my spiritual life became deeper I began to realize the externals don't matter. That there's this deep inner spiritual happiness that is really what I'm made of, that I have access to at every moment and I can feel that every moment. This is what I mean by part of what I mean by dynamic spiritual life. So how many of you would like to live a very dynamic vibrant spiritual life. Okay. And you probably wouldn't be interested in coming here if you didn't uh, have that feeling on some level. How many of you sometimes feel that this world is holding me down from that experience? It's like, it's almost like, um, like I'm in the water, deep water, and tied to my ankle is a cinder block, and I'm trying to, like, that spiritual life is like just above the water and I'm working hard to try to stay above that water but the world is like pulling me down. It may be financial concerns, it may be relationship concerns, it may be national concerns. There's so many concerns and these things tend to invade our mind. Uh, They tend to dominate our thoughts, just the struggle in life. And even sometimes when this doesn't appear to be a struggle, Even the things that we find pleasurable are suddenly dragging us down. You know, how many of you feel that that it's hard to 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 feel that dynamic spiritual life all the time? Okay, I know, I I, I definitely fall in that category myself. Okay, I think that's the way it is um, uh, um, for most people, and it's a lifetime project to kind of become free of that weight and to and to. I, and I don't mean, I'm not saying this in any kind, I don't mean to say this in any... Um, I, I'm very positive when I say this. When I say that, I'm saying that I think it's a lifetime of work for most of us. Uh, but a lifetime is also very short. So in one sense, we have this lifetime. And we can engage in, we can take this lifetime and engage in, in spiritual thoughts and spiritual practices... And feel the weight getting lighter all the time and feel it's easier to get above that water. And hopefully as we as we age we can really become free. We can really become free. And so what I wanted to share today was just one concept that could in a very profound way help us become free. And that and that is this concept about the mind being like a computer. Even you could simplify that and say just this concept, just this very profound concept which I was never taught in school when I was a kid. Nobody came forward and shared this idea with me, that Kastuba, my name wasn't Kastuba when I was in school, but you know, David was my name. David, you should know that there are many people in this world that have faith in an idea that goes back thousands and thousands of years. You don't have to accept this idea, but at least you should think about it. And that idea is that you are not your body, and even you are not your mind. Right? And nobody encouraged me to think about that. I was more just encouraged to think about like how, how are you going to find the external pleasures and the external comforts in life? That's where happiness comes from. But nobody had, had 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 encouraged me until I came in touch with this tradition through the books, through these ancient texts. Nobody had encouraged me to think think about this. Who are you? Like if we walked out on the street uh, outside here today, and we stopped the first person that we saw, and we asked them the question, "Who are you?" What will they probably say? Okay, probably the first thing is they share their name, right? So you know, I'd say, "Who are you?" And then they give me a name, and I might say, "Okay, but that is just like kind of a label, you know, put on you so that we can identify you and so on." But that's not who you are, right? Well, I suppose not. Okay So then who are you? Right? Now what are they going to say? Okay, maybe maybe the place where they come from. I'm sorry. Okay, maybe it may be gender related, which is also bodily related, yeah or mentally related. yeah. Maybe their occupation, maybe where they're from, these kind of things. And I might say, well, you know, that's interesting, but is that still who you are, you know? You, you're doing you doing this occupation now, but you may not be doing it next year, or what to speak of ten years from now. You weren't doing it before. Is that you? You know, go deeper. Tell me who you are, right? And then they might get to like their passions in life. Well, I'm really into music, or I'm into literature, or you know, I'm dedicated to this political cause, or something like that. But still, we still haven't gotten to who you are, right? Who you are underneath it all. Right? What is it? That, within this ancient yoga tradition, there is this idea that there are two kinds of energy. Two kinds of energy. I mean, within this universe, there's, they can be, it can be categorized in many ways, but fundamentally, the first thing they would do is cut it in two and say that there's material energy and there's spiritual energy. In Sanskrit, they say prakriti for material energy, purusha for spiritual energy. And they say that there's a fundamental, two fundamental differences between these two energies. The first one is, is that the material energy, the shapes that it takes are constantly in flux. Right? Like my body is made of material energy. So it's, it's in this shape right now, but it's changing even at every moment. And um, as we get older, we realize just how quickly it you know, comes and it goes. Um, the building that we're in right now, if we came, if we were here five years ago, would it have looked like this? No? Okay, and, and if we come back ten years from now, what you speak of twenty or a hundred years from now. Uh, this, what this space looks like will probably be very different. Um, it's constantly shifting. Where spiritual energy, nothing can change it. It's unchangeable. You, you can't cut in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna speaks about the spiritual energy, the soul. You can't cut it, you can't burn it, you can't divide it. It's irreducible, nothing can harm it. It never changes eternally. That means, and eternally doesn't just mean like never in the future, it means never in the past either. That this energy is just of a completely different category. Nobody shared that thought with me when I was a kid either. I was like, why didn't why did I ever hear about that? Just at least, again. I'm not asking for someone to tell me that that's the truth, but just for someone to say, for thousands of years, people have there's been many people have very wise people, very you know thoughtful people have believed this idea. So the first difference is that material energy is tempered in the forms that it takes. Spiritual energy is eternal, never changes. And the second one is material energy has no consciousness, no awareness, whereas the spirit is conscious. It feels. Right. We are that spark of spiritual energy according to these ancient texts. We never change, right? Our bodies may change, our minds may change, our circumstances may change, but nothing can change us, nothing can harm us. And that the nature of that self is that it's eternal, it's full of knowledge, and it's full of bliss, that by nature we're happy, right? Okay. Now, if we go to the Shrimad Bhagavatam, this ancient text, and we go to the third canto of it, there's a really fascinating conversation between one sage named Vidura and he's asking questions of another sage. Anyone know that sage's name? Maitreya. Thank you. Very very good. Maitreya. Vidura was such a beautiful character. Is he a favorite of yours, Maitrey Guru? <laughs> you know, he's 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 he speaks truth to power. That's one of his great qualities. Um, and even if he even if it's unappreciated in a respectful way he presents it and he's ready to accept what the consequences are not many people have full courage to speak like that he he spoke that to the king and they kicked him out <laughs> they kicked him out of the kingdom <laughs> even he was their relative enough of this we don't want to hear the truth you know sometimes sometimes you have to you know they were headed towards disaster and he spoke up and said you know, you're you're confused the way that you're thinking, and there's better ways to approach this, and I just have to stand up and say this. I'm saying this for your own good. I know you don't like to hear it. Get out. So they kicked him out. And he said, that's okay. You know, a lot of times when something like that happens, you're treated unfairly, the mind begins to resent it. You become angry at the people. You begin to, like, to go on a campaign against the people that have mistreated you. Hey, they're wrong and I tried to tell them the right thing and they treated me like this, they're rotten. They're he, he didn't do any of that. He said, okay, let me, make, let, me, let me make the best use of this time now that I've been kicked out of my home and kingdom. I'm gonna travel by foot. I'm gonna walk to the holy places in India, to the holy rivers, uh, to the mountains. I'm gonna I'm gonna search out people that have deep insights into life, and, and and see what they have to say. See what I can learn from them. And when he got to the place called um, Hardwar, on the bank of the Ganges River, at the foot of the Himalaya Mountains in India, he met the sage Martreya, and he put forward a question that I tell you, this very question was such a good question that people are still hearing this question and its answer to this day. And his question was this that he said, we've, we hear from these ancient texts that the nature of the self is that it's blissful, that it's unchangeable, right? that nothing can harm it, nothing can affect it. Why do I not feel that all the time? How do we lose touch with our own nature? What is it? If by nature I'm blissful, why do I not always feel blissful? How do we lose touch? And, you know, th- these sages, they lived, in, you know, they, they lived in caves and they slept under different trees every night, and they, they often lived by the river. A lot of times, the sages like to be by the river and they just feel by being by the river, observing the river. You know, th- there's insights that you get about life. A lot of, lot of insights from nature. And so Maitreya uh, shared a nature insight. He used a nature analogy. He said that it's just like when the moon is reflected on water. He said the moon is up there in the sky. Picture a full moon in the sky. When you see that full moon, it's steady. right? It's just bright light pumping out its light. But if you look at the reflection of the moon on the water, and even if there's just a little bit of breeze blowing by, then there's some little ripples on the surface of the water then it looks like the moon isn't steady, but it's like it's rippling. right? It, it, it's, it's, it seems to be of the nature of the water. The, the, the nature of the water is to ripple. The nature of the moon is to be steady. But when you think that the reflection of the moon on the water is the moon, then you think that the moon has the nature of the water, that it ripples, that it moves. Right? This is a profound answer, in my opinion. He was saying that we're like the moon. The soul is like the moon. It's steady, right? It's steady in its happiness. It's steady in its eternality. It's steady in its knowledge. It—that's it, it, its nature. But what we do is we look. The self it looks at the mind, and it thinks that's me, right? You know, this is my name. This is where I'm from. This is my occupation. These are my passions. That's who I am. That's not who we are according to these sages they're saying that the mind is this subtle instrument it's a subtle facility that we use and it's and because it's made out of matter it's always changing but the self is different if if you the self identifies with the mind you will feel ups and downs ups and downs ups and downs but if you could actually turn back around or in one sense not be controlled by that misidentification, then you could experience your own true nature underneath. And that's really what the practice of bhakti does. It's really about uncovering the nature that's there all the time. But what's the obstacle in in feeling it? Who could say? The mind. mind. mind, There's, There's a definition of yoga that I use sometimes. Yoga is a practice which empowers one to overcome the obstacle of the mind for the purpose of the self experiencing its own true nature. Right? So there's these different practices that are there. The practices are to help us overcome the mind. Any yoga practice, any yoga, um, anything from the yoga tradition, the mantras, the asanas, the pranayama, the studying of the sacred text and contemplating them, the, the reflection that's involved in that, even the, the cultural aspects of it, the etiquette that's around it, you can ask why. You know, why do the asana? Why do the pranayama? Why study that book? Why reflect on it? Why is, are there these aspects of the culture? Why are they important? The answer every time will be tied to how it affects the mind. Because yoga is all about dealing with the mind. Right? And if we can get that mind under control, rather than be controlled by the mind, we can experience our own true nature. And that's really what you always for. It's as simple as that. Any questions so far? How are we doing so far? Everybody with me? Even one question out there? Don't be shy. Yes. Your name again was... Yana. 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 Yeah. Um, how would you answer the question about who you are in the
2: spiritual way? I mean, you personally.
1: Yeah. You know, of course, it always how we answer any question always depends on who we're speaking to and their, their frame of reference. Um, but w- w- it could be answered. I, every time someone asks me who I am, usually I'm telling them my name too right? <laughs> for practicality. Um, but what we, but in answer to the, to the way that you're posing the question, we could say I am a spark of spiritual energy right an eternal spark of spiritual energy that is animating this body right now. I'm that conscious spark, spark of energy. I think just that concept enough is a good first step in understanding who we are. Like it's, it's a generic answer. But the subtleties of who I am, the subtleties of that self are not fully revealed to me at this point. Like There's a whole esoteric side to this um, practice that could get into understanding even like individually who I am on an eternal basis that I've forgotten. Sometimes it's said that even this existence is kind of dreamlike. you know And sometimes when you're in the dream, you kind of forget everything about who you are and your circumstances outside of the dream. And so I can't answer that question in great specifics, but I would, I would you know I could answer it in a, in a general way, that I'm the eternal spark of spiritual energy whose nature is eternal. Full of knowledge, full of bliss. Is that all right? Okay. All right. Um, okay. So, Vidur um, asked a question, and Maitreya gave an answer. And that answer was using a nature analogy. And a lot of times these ancient texts use nature analogies. But today we're going to use an answer that has to do with technology. An answer that has to do with modern technology, and and personally, I find it—I find this very, I guess you could say, interesting, but or even um, fascinating—that computer technology is about fifty or sixty years old, something. Do you know? You're from Silicon Valley.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, computers came out in the. When we get our first computer? Oh,
1: no, but they had the big computers... Yeah. yeah. I think in the 40s, 40s I or so they started yeah. to. Well, okay. Yes, something like in the 40s. It developed after World War II. And, but it only became like a in the home kind of thing in the 90s. Yeah. And nobody had computers in the home in the 70s. 80s. Yeah, and I think even it was really the 90s when it caught on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but I find it fascinating that such a modern technology, we could draw such strong analogies to these very ancient teachings. And, you know, an analogy is strong when you go deeper and deeper and deeper and it keeps holding up, you know. And this idea of the the mind being a computer, you could go deeper and deeper. We're just going to hit some top layers. But the more you go into it, the more that everything keeps clicking into place, and it makes it's, it's faith increasing when you see that. I think you know. Sometimes, sometimes even in design, like in architecture or so on, we look to nature because it's it's models kind of work. Like, but like if we want to design an airplane, we look at a bird. You know. Um, but but this idea that that when we look at well, let's look at it this way. Imagine that you were locked in a there's a closet right there, with the black door. Imagine someone took you in the closet. Put you inside, left you there, locked the door. You didn't know for how long, and all you had in there was a computer and a Wi-Fi connection. Okay. Now, <laughs> <laughs> help! <laughs> so, what could you do with that computer? You know, you could send messages to the outside world through many different channels, right? You could, you could send out emails. You could build a website if you knew enough of how to do that and send messages that way. You could get on Zoom or Skype or Instagram. or You could send messages out. Um, and you could also take messages in through all those same channels and hear what's going on outside. And you could also process the information that comes in and you could store that information that comes in. What these yogis are saying is basically, that's exactly what the mind does it's a it's a it's a machine. it's a very subtle machine, but it's a machine that processes and stores information and it's a faculty for sending information out and bringing information in. That's all it does, right And so so let's let's imagine we had a oh, and uh, well here we can we can look or you can even switch to the next slide to simplify it a bit. Let's say that the a laptop computer is, a, is the mind right um, and just like, a laptop computer may have plug-in devices, so our mind has plug-in devices. In the Bhagavad-gita, Krishna actually refers to six senses, right? What is it? and Prakriti, Stani Krishna refers to the, um, the six senses, the five that we generally speak of, and then he says the sixth one is the mind. Because it's generally the mind, it's said that the mind is considered a sense because it's the center of all the senses. It's what all the senses are plugged into. All the information that comes through the senses is transferred to the mind and that's where that information is processed. And so here we have a mind in the center and for eyes it has a camera. Camera brings in visual data into to the computer and the eyes bring visual data to the mind. And it has a microphone. Microphone brings in audio data to the mind in the same way that a microphone brings in audio data Data to the computer. Right? The other senses are there too, like the touch screen is like the skin, right? And um, although these things aren't on the market, from what I've heard, as we speak, in computer laboratories they're developing the the virtual tongue and, and uh, the virtual what is what would be the other one the tongue and the and the virtual nose. Yeah, because cool. why not, right? Like why why couldn't you drop anything on a certain um, a test tube or you know and it could break it down and tell you what what um elements are in it if you dropped like some i don 't know ketchup you know on it, it could identify what's there and, and then and then it could recognize oh this is this is ketchup right or or same with aroma right? so those things are will be developed they' they're, they're, just, they're just they're not far away. And uh, and certainly, they would play a role in virtual reality as we go deeper into that. Um, So also, you know, but these these yoga texts, they also say that there are senses, not just the knowledge acquiring senses, but there are senses of action. And one of those is the voice, right? So we can also connect to a computer uh, speaker, and it can make sound, right? And then the computer also has its memory bank, right? It's got its hard drive, right? And so that hard drive is like our memory, there, I could go deeper, and there's more things, but let's just start with that. This is let's keep things relatively simple. We want to walk away today with just one concept, and then see how we can, what we can do in life to dig deeper into that concept. So this con, even just the concept that I'm not the mind, right? What to speak of the the mind is a computer, right? How many of you have practiced meditation before, at least a little bit? Now, when the first time or one of the first times you practice meditation, did they did they tell you something like this? Like they say, okay, sit up straight, make, keep your spine straight, close your eyes, then breathe, right? Then sometimes they want you to draw your attention to breath in a certain place, like concentrate on the breath as it enters your nose, or maybe concentrate on your breath as it enters your lungs. And all of that is really just to kind of calm the mind down a little bit, stop it from the patterns that it's running in, Kind of let go of what you've been doing earlier in the day. Remove yourself from that space. And by concentrating on your breathing, the mind naturally does that. Um, and then sometimes the, the meditation teacher will say something like, don't try to control your thoughts, but just watch them come and go. Have you ever heard that kind of thing before? So just that practice is very profound. can be very profound. Just that, Just the recognition that hold it. I'm not my mind. My mind is running all the time. It's got a programming on it, and I'm just sitting here watching it, right? Sometimes it's making me feel one way, sometimes it's making me feel another way. But I can kind of like step out of the, the, the stream and just watch it, right? And it's not even doing what I want it to do. It's doing its own thing. Just, just that experience can be very profound, right? But this computer analogy is kind of like digging deeper into it. All right. I'd like to say that we're approaching the red pill, blue pill moment of this talk because um, very soon you're going to have to make a, a decision with your life. I, I didn't tell you that that was the case, but this is what's going to happen. <laughs> but imagine we have the laptop computer here and we connected a camera to it and the camera is? The eyes. And we connected a speaker to it and the speaker is? The, the voice the voice and then we we program that computer do we have any computer programmers here okay so you would know how to program a computer in such a way where if we flashed a red light in front of the camera that we could have a recorded human voice play um, play a voice saying i like red right we could do that yeah. simple enough So you flash a red light in front of the camera, and the computer responds with a human voice saying, I like red. Then we could also go further and uh, program the computer so that when we flash a blue light in front of the camera, that the computer responds by saying, I don't like blue. Yes? Okay. Not, you know, not a too wild thing to do. I wouldn't know how to do it, but it can certainly be done. So now two important questions about this. First question is Does the computer like red and not like blue? What do you think? People are getting nodding. Why not? It
2: doesn't really have an
1: opinion. Why doesn't it have an opinion? Because it's not real. Okay. Well, like it's a computer, so it's, yeah. it's like material, so it's not actual.
2: Like it hasn't got motion.
1: It doesn't feel. Exactly. Like we were saying earlier, right? There's material energy, matter, which is always changing, and it's not conscious. It doesn't feel, right? And then there's the spirit or the soul, right, which is always steady and actually feels. In, in the Yoga Sutras, sometimes when the, this, the sage Patanjali was speaking about the soul, he used the term drishta, which means the seer, right? It means because it's not the eyes that see, the eyes are just the camera. It's the soul that sees. He could have just as easily said the hearer or the feeler or the taster. Uh, but he just chose one of those senses. Maybe we think of sight first. And he said the seer, the one that actually experiences what comes through the senses. Right? That's the self. Okay. So first thing, it seems like we're in general agreement that the computer doesn't like red and not like blue. It's just, it's just a machine that has been programmed to mimic human experience, but is not actually experiencing. But I'll tell you something um many current scientists will tell us no that consciousness is something that you could produce to me it's it's almost silly to even it's like you've just become over intelligent you're just like overthinking things or maybe you're a little motivated in what you're trying to discover but it doesn't matter how complicated that computer gets it still has no feelings right we know what it's like to see red and feel a certain way to see blue and feel a certain way Computer is just mimicking that. Okay, but now here's the big question: Could we have flipped it? Could we have programmed the computer so that rather than saying "I like red and I don't like blue," that it could have said, "I don't like red and I like blue"? Is that possible? Mm-hmm. Yes. Very, very possible, right? Just click, 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 hit a few keys, and it's going to respond automatically. In the exact opposite way. Alright? Everybody with me now? Because we're getting to the red pill, blue pill moment. <laughs> what I'm gonna say right now, you're gonna have to make a choice. Either I accept this and I change my entire life, or I go back into the illusion. <laughs> and that is this is that what these yogis were telling us is that there is that our mind, or you could say there's a part of our mind that is programmed. To respond to data, whether it's audio data, visual data, um, what do we call it? tactile data, to respond automatically as either this is favorable or this is unfavorable, right? I like it. I don't like it. It's programmed automatically. There's not even reasoning involved, but there's an instant reaction. Like I could turn around right now. And I see. A, a wall and it's painted white, and within me there's going to be a response, automatic response that's either going to be favorable or unfavorable, you know. And sometimes it'll be very favorable or very unfavorable, and sometimes it's going to lie closer to the to the midpoint, right, more neutral. But the yogis say never entirely neutral. It's either I like it or I don't like it. So I might look at that wall and say, "Oh, nice choice, white paint. That's I think they did the right thing there. That's what I would have done." Or I might look at it and say, why did they paint this thing white? What were they thinking? It's like, you know, they should have left it like the natural color or something, you know, whatever. I have a feeling about it. It's programmed into my mind. And it's not even, I'm, I might later engage in thought, I'm in reasoning, which is another department of mind, and we're going to discuss this. At, at a later point, I might say, hmm, Actually, that may may have been a good idea. Or, you know, there's probably a practical reason why they painted it right or something like that. But initially, either I like it or I don't like it. We walk down the street, there's billboards. I like it, I don't like it. You know, they have people um, in the advertising agency that are very aware of this. And they're trying to design it in such a way that we have a favorable, um, sometimes even they'll use unfavorable, but whatever it is, they're going to try to tie it to their product and have us thinking about their product. So these yogis are telling us that our mind is programmed to respond instantly, automatically, impulsively to data as either favorable or unfavorable, attraction, repulsion, like that. But this is the key. That just as the computer could have been programmed the other way, so our minds could have been programmed the other way. The things that we find attractive, the things that our mind t- are telling us, go get more of that to be happy. It could have been programmed that we thought, no, actually, that's not so attractive. And it could have been programmed the other way. You know. Like one time I was giving a similar talk. I was in uh, South America, in Colombia. And I said, there's certain places in the world where people eat insects. Right? It's, not, it's not, not only not uncommon, it's very common. Like, I'm from New York. It's probably pretty similar to London. You know, in New York, we call it like a bodega. Do they have like an equivalent of that? I guess they just call it a shop on the corner or something like that, right? They have these, you know, every block has one, you know, you go in their little shop, little kind of little mini grocery store. And you walk in there and you can find a bag of potato chips, you know, and someone will be thinking like, oh, that's, our minds are programmed to think, that's nice, right? If I just... Nice, crisp, salty. Everything about it is nice. You know, I, I, As soon as I eat that, I'm going to start to feel a little better. I'm going to start to feel a little happy. You know,
2: So I'm, I'm
1: willing to give up a little bit of money for that experience. I'll go and I'll purchase a bag of potato chips, walk outside, pop one in my mouth, start crunching away, and I'm thinking, okay, that's nice. That's nice, right? Feeling good. In the same way, they're walking into a shop in South America and getting a bag of fried crickets. And they're thinking in the exact same way their mind is like, this would be nice, this would be nice. Isn't it? Now, most people in the United States and I'd imagine most people in England would think, that's not attractive at all, that's repulsive. Right? Or even, you couldn't pay, not only would I not pay money to do that, I wouldn't do it for free and you could even, you can't pay me to do that. Right? I'll give you $10, eat that cricket. No! <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, But why is it that in a certain part of the world, many people find this uh, attractive, enjoyable, um, and in another part of the world, everybody's thinking, no, repulsive, disgusting. Is it that they have different taste buds? Or is it that the mind's been programmed differently? We call this conditioning. We might call it culture conditioning. You know, That a child growing up in South America, perhaps when they're young, their loving mother... Coming to them with a plate, I'd right? Say, here, try one, right? And the child's looking at their mother, the mother's eating it, the father's eating it, their siblings are eating it, the neighbors are eating it. And as they're eating it, they're smiling and they're happy. And that's just coding going right, in, right into the computer, right? Coding going in saying, cricket is good, cricket is food, cricket brings happiness. <laughs>
2: you
1: know? that's, and, and that just gets coded right into the computer. Whereas in another part of the world, if a cricket lands on your plate, your mother's like, oh, we've got to throw the whole thing out now. It's like this horrible thing just happened. Oh, you know. So then that's another kind of programming that goes in. Right? And so then we walk around with that cultural conditioning. But here's what these sages are saying, and this is what I mean by the red pill, blue pill. From the minute that we wake up in the morning every day to the minute that we lie down and go to sleep at night we're following this program, we're acting in such a way to try to find pleasure and try to find happiness, following a particular code that has been programmed into our mind. But the yogis are saying that almost like a slave, you're following that coding, and it's there's actually no truth that happiness lies in that product. And your mind could have just, it's just that your mind has been programmed as if happiness does line that I'm not saying that we don't experience material pleasures. But what I'm saying is the real happiness that we're looking for is not found in the external object. And our mind could have easily been programmed another way. We could have just as easily been been chasing other things for happiness, just according to the coding that goes in. So, so the yogis are saying, why not step back and observe this process, observe this coding, see what's going on, And realize that like a slave, you're following this programming. And you got to change that. You got to get that under control. When I was a kid, I grew up just outside of New York City. I could jump on a train and be like in downtown New York in 20 minutes. And when I was 15 years old, my parents didn't even really know, but I just started going downtown. And I started to make friends down there. And there's a whole scene down there. And for me it was very exciting. It was like there's this music scene and it was like kind of a little dangerous. And, uh, but it was like, for me, you know, you hit 15 years old, so you start to make your own decisions in life. You know, like now I'm going to decide what I'm doing. So I'd go in, I'd go downtown, I'd step off the train and I'd be like, I'd feel alive and I'd feel excited. And, you know, all the, there's girls, there's drugs, there's, all kinds of action going on, and I was like, now I'm deciding what I want to do. I felt free. But now when I look back on the time, as I say to myself, I wasn't free at all. I was just, you know, just through movies that I'd seen, and especially music that I'd listened to, I developed all these ideas. I decided everybody in my town is a loser, and that's where the action's at. <laughs> Nobody's gonna hold me back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it all out now. I'm free. But now I look and I say, no, I was programmed to think that that was cool. And that that's where, you know, and, and that the fact was those people were just as miserable as everybody else. You know, the little bit of youth on top of it makes it seem exciting. But then that goes away real quick. You know, now I realize I was following a programming to the T. I wasn't free at all. I was just kind of like if I would have grown up in a different place, I you could have dropped me off in that same the same exact spot and be like this isn't nice at all this is like a horrible place to be but for some reason my program is saying this was the right place to be you know so we all have to ask ourselves that question am i just following programming am i am i kind of a slave and the, the moments of my human life are passing by quickly and i haven't really developed the determination to figure out how to break free right and that's what yoga is all about yes
2: to our karma and how we're acting according to our karma uh,
1: rather than maybe programming? That's a great question. And, and, it, and it shows another kind of click where the, the, the computer, the mind, another like, um, I mentioned that a good analogy, like the deeper you go into it, it has many levels. And What these yogis tell us is that there's a cycle of thought and experience. It's a karmic cycle. That we get an idea, I want to commit, do a certain activity. And then we develop determination to do the action. So first there's a thought, it's like a seed.
2: Yeah.
1: Even that's the term they use, Bija, in the Sanskrit word for seed. So there's a seed of the action. Right? Karma means action. And so that seed comes with the thought. And then we act. And from the action comes reaction. And they say some of those reactions, they call them prarabdha and rubda. It means some of, the, some of the manifestations of the reaction are observable, like they've already manifest from the seed. They've grown into a plant that you can see. And some of them are still like a seed underground. They haven't shown yet. Right? And then beyond that, there's another stage wherein through that particular action, not only do I receive a reaction, but my mind itself becomes programmed to do the action again, to think about the action again, and even to commit the action again. And then you commit the action again and then you go around and around and around on this cycle. So it's, it's, it's very similar to like um, you're on YouTube and you click um, on one particular video. What happens in the future when you go back to YouTube? It's, you know, it's got an algorithm, right and it's going to show you more stuff for the same, right? Or you, click, you know, you're on Facebook and, and then showing these advertisements and you click on one of them. And then that, those kind of advertisements are coming up again and again and again. So the Yogis are saying that that's part of the cycle of karma that, that our mind gets shaped to think like that more, that the same kind of thoughts that we have in the past begin to arise again and again. and therefore the Yogis are really careful about where they begin to let their mind wander too. Because they know that the more that I think in a particular way, the harder it is to stop thinking in that way. That makes sense? Yes. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I can answer that in a general way and in a specific way. But Vaisheshya Rabu for the second half of this workshop really is going to be focusing on all just techniques, little things that we can do, thoughts that we can engage with, practices that we can do to help us uh, break free. So that, that, that would be, I think, really useful and helpful. When Vidura asked this question of Maitreya, when he said, you know, how do we lose touch with the self? And uh, he gave that moon analogy. And so then, to, to, to speak about it further, what, um, what Maitreya said was, he said, if you just give yourself to Krishna, if you just devote yourself and your thoughts and your actions to, to, the, to the root of all existence, to Sri Krishna, then naturally, you begin to feel the the nature of the self arise. You begin to see the world through different programming. The programming that's there that's disturbing you or that's out of harmony with who you are. Let's put it that way. Because imagine if that water on that lake that the moon was reflected on was perfectly unmoving. Then when you saw the reflection of the moon on it, it would have also been steady. And there would have been no conflict, no tension between the moon on the water and the moon in the sky. So a lot of what bhakti yoga is about, it's, it's about reprogramming the mind, exposing the mind to certain thoughts, exposing the mind to certain music, exposing them. the cultural arts become very powerful in bhakti. Because it can be through drama, it can be through dance, it can be through music, it can be through literature, poetry, <coughs> it can be through architecture fine arts, by exposing our minds to these things, by exposing our minds to certain thoughts, by exposing our minds to these ancient texts, that now we get different algorithms. Now you're clicking on a certain type of video again and again, and now you're getting just that. right? You, you, you can, you can, This is why in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, the mind, it can be your bandhu or your satra, right? It can be your friend or it can be your enemy. It can be working for you in other words, it can be programmed in such a way where that spontaneous, instant, impulsive reaction is is favorable for your release, is favorable for your yoga practice, is favorable for you becoming free. If you're aware of it, you can program it that way. Um, or it can work against you. It can drag you deeper into darkness. It can drag you into poor decision-making and more suffering, more ignorance. So he gave a simple formula Give your life to, to Krishna. Give your body, your mind, your words. And we'll see Krishna kind of speaks the same thing um, in the Bhagavad Gita where he says, he says this, Do you know this verse? It's, one of, it's considered one of the four, what they call the nutshell verses of the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna says that if you devote yourself to serving him, he says, I give that person what he calls buddhi Yoga. It means a certain type of clear reasoning, clear discernment that you're seeing through all the time. Sometimes, you see, our attachments in life tend to cloud our the clarity of our vision, right? Have you ever been with a friend that falls in love with someone? But everybody knows this this person is definitely problematic, that you're getting all caught up in this person and you're all head over heels and you're talking about them all the time and you're really excited about them, like I can get it. Harry made it. I'm sorry. Harry and Meghan. Okay. I, 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 I'm not. I don't know too much about the, the royal family, but that may be a good example. Sometimes, sometimes, um, sometimes everybody knows but that one person, right? Because their attachment is so strong that they're not seeing what everybody. That person just into you for your money. Can't you see it? You know, everybody gets about that one person. Our attachments tend to cloud the clarity of our perception. And so, Krishna is going to say that if you dedicate your body, your mind, your word to serving God, you begin to think, I'm not going to chase after the externals. That by nature, I have this connection to this eternal source. Just as the sun rays have a connection to the sun. He says, I give them this clarity of vision. So maybe this is a good time to segue into the next uh, slide. Thank, thank you, Mateo. Uh, this may look a little complicated. It's actually very simple. And, and this is really the last thing I want to share and then we can get into some of these techniques or take a break. But the question. I was just wondering, so is it, is it better
2: to use this programming that tends to either move towards attraction or aversion to be attracted
0: to more favorable things or to get to a place of, of like real...
1: Neutrality. Um, well, you see, that's a great question. Commonly there are two schools... Of Vedanta. People that read these ancient yogic texts, <laughs> excuse me, commonly they fall into one of two schools. And one of the schools is searching for that neutrality that you're speaking of. They think that that neutrality is like the highest goal. Um, and there's another school that say no, that neutrality is just, it's kind of like um, neutral. Um, so, like, if there's illusion, and then there's neutral, and then there's reality that's beyond it all. You know, you could say in this world there's form, in this world there's relationship, but in this world there's also pain. So, if I'm going to become free from pain, then it must be that I become free from relationship and free from form. And so, this neutral stage is like the goal. And most of the early teachers that came from India to the West, they taught this. Yeah. When Srila Prabhupada came, his, his, that's called Advaita Vedanta. But Srila Prabhupada, his actual name was Bhakti Vedanta. So the Bhakti Vedantas are saying, no, no, no. It's like, it's like, if this world is, in a sense, a reflection of reality, then although there's form and, and um, relationship here, and although they cause pain here. Becoming free of form and relationship is like a neutral stage. But then what's being reflected has form and it has relationship. But this is just upside down. Right? And, and and Krishna gives the example of a tree on on the you know, that we could see that the, he says this world is like an upside down tree. We see an upside down tree reflected on a lake. And so that that neutral stage. Arjuna asked Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita about this. What's the better way you know, of the spiritual path? One that, that worships your form with love, connects with your form as a person. Or one who's seeking that neutrality. And Krishna says, those that are seeking that neutrality, that after a long, long, long hard practice, they may come to the stage where they understand everything, the truth. But he says, but for one who dedicates himself to me, he says, I become their swift deliverer. He'll also say, didhame, buddhi, yogantam." I give them. Because what's said in these ancient texts is that we are that spark making this body come alive. We are that spark of spiritual energy, but we're not alone in this body. That actually God becomes a spark in everybody too. And there's two sparks in everybody. We call that paramatma. And then that paramatma is just waiting. For us to say, okay, I'm ready to break out of the illusion. This is what I want. Although I have a mind filled with programming that's that's like that cinder block holding me down in the water, making it hard for me to get my... But what I really want is to cut that off and be free. Um, then the Dhammi Buddha Yoga, him, he can begin to give us... We The two people are seeing the same thing and they're thinking of it in different ways. And so this Buddha Yoga, this clear discernment... Um, is uh, when we get it, um, it's it's more. It, we can swiftly become free. So, in this bhakti tradition, we recommend not the neutral, <laughs> but the uh, but that that kind of the positive end of the reflection. That, did I get to the... Okay, thank you. Uh, yes.
2: Uh, what, what's the, uh, which
1: verse were you referring to? The Dammi That's ten ten ten. ten. Ten ten. So, so, let me just briefly share what I have up here. I want to be brief about this. This isn't complicated. And then I'm going to share just one story to help illustrate how this works. And then we can take a break. Does that sound okay? Everybody with me for this? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm no computer expert. What's your name? Luke? So, Luke will know more about this than me. But from what I've heard, there are two types of memory on the computer.
0: Right?
1: Um. One, we could call it the hard drive. I don't know there's a more technical term for that, but yeah. Okay. And then there's something called random access memory. And the random access, the, the hard drive is where um, information is stored. And the random access memory is the information that the computer is currently um, engaging with. Would that be a proper way to state it?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> just, you sure? Yeah. <laughs> there may be a better way. It's, um,
2: yeah, it's, it's the data you want to immediately call upon because yes. the, the hard drive is difficult to recall from.
1: Okay, see, that's stored. So it's something like our subconscious memory. We've got tons of information in our mind that we're not engaging with right now at certain times, either we consciously call up information or different information gets sent up from the subconscious memory and we engage with it, right? And so that's called the random access memory. And so what we're describing here is we have a hard disk. We're going to call that the subconscious mind in English. Sometimes in Sanskrit, they call that the chitta. Sometimes in Sanskrit, chitta refers to the entire thing, so it gets a little complicated. So I'm just using the English term. And the information that's stored on that hard drive in the subconscious mind, does anyone know what term we use for that? Sanskrit term? Samskaras. Samskaras right? means we see something, we hear something. It comes in through the senses. It gets processed through the random access memory. In that process, it gets shaped uh, in a particular way, and then it's stored. Right. And then it may come back at any time. And it comes back up. It's kind of not only just stored there as information, but it's kind of, there's an emotion tied to it too. The feeling that we have from, from whatever that experience was it gets stored in there with it. And then, and then it may come up at, a, at another time in the future. Okay. All right. So, so the random access memory, we could say that there are three applications that the random access memory operates through in our mind. And those are called the manas, the ahankara, and the buddhi. This is just the very basics of this um, understanding the mind. There are books written by this dense books that are very subtle and and only real philosophers can penetrate very deeply into them. you know it's like they get it and they debate about all these subtle nuances. but we don't necessarily have to go that deep into it if we If we understand just the fundamentals of this, it can be enough to change our lives in a very powerful way. So I just want to quickly mention this. I've spoken a bit about the manas, the impulsive mind. That part of our mind that doesn't reflect, that is programmed, just like, just like we can program the computer to say, I like red or I don't like red. It has an instant impulsive reaction. A lot of our thinking is taking place on that level, and we can call that the manas. That makes sense? Okay. The opposite of that, in a sense, is the buddhi, right? which here we're calling the intellect, that's where the reasoning takes place, the, the reflection takes place, the discernment takes place, the judgment takes place. Is this? I might I might um, look at that wall and say I like white, or I might look at it and, and really begin to think about whether white was the right decision or not. You know, and and I could draw, I could reach down into my subconscious mind and draw up different ideas and different information about why white could be good, why white might not be good. And so on. I could set aside my impulsive reaction. Sometimes we call that an emotional reaction. I could set aside that impulsive programming, and really begin to, to draw from other information that's trying to discern what's best in this circumstance. And we can call it in a simple way that that might be enough to help us understand the buddhi. Does that make sense so far? We all know that that experience, right? And then there's the ahankara. Um, here we're translating that in English as ego. That means our sense of who I am and the experience of who I am. Right? That, that these yogis said that there's a department in our mind, there's an application um, operating in our mind that has to do with identity, who we think we are. And what these yogis are saying is that at every moment, there's, there's data coming in through our senses. And everything that comes through the senses is recorded. It passes through the random access memory in these three applications, and it's stored in the subconscious mind. And nothing goes unrecorded. It's all there, right? It's all there. Um, but how? But our awareness of these three applications and how they work can be can be the difference here of how we begin to practice yoga and so on. So they're saying that all this information is generally, this programming, a lot of it is illusory. A lot of it is untrue. But we become convinced it's true. I need this to be happy. I can't be happy until I have that. I'll never be happy until I get, change this situation or change that. They're saying, no, no, no. Actually, you're happy by nature. The user of the computer is the self. right? We are the user of our mind. And our nature underneath, our mind may, see, may be saying, you need that to be happy, but that's not true, right? Our mind may be saying, this has to change me before I'll be happy. That's not true, because you're happy underneath it all, right? You just have to rediscover that. You have to get out of your mind or get the mind under control. And also, ideas of our identity. Who are you? I'm this body, right? I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm American, I'm British, Right? I'm tall, I'm short, whatever it may be. No, no, you're just temporarily in that situation. You know, I'm a bus driver, you know, I'm the prime minister. That's something that you are for a very, that's not even who you are, but that's just a role that you're playing for a very short amount of time. That's not you, right? So a lot of what we think we need to be happy or not be happy, and even the conception of who we are is mostly illusory. And the the only way to break free from that is through really um, well-applied buddhi, well-applied reasoning. And yoga practice has a lot to do with this. Reading certain texts, hearing these texts, discussing these texts with your friends, discussing these texts with people that have deeper realizations about that. And then, real important, reflecting on those ideas as you pass through life. Here's a simple idea. Here's a simple idea that um, there's a law of karma operating in the world. That the actions that I do in life, that they have reactions. And so therefore, what comes to me in this world, I I can engage with the idea that I've done something in the past that's brought that to me. Just that, just that idea is something that I can hold with me and I can reflect on. That when I go down into the tube and I step on the train and someone's a little... Just courteous to me and bumps into me and doesn't even bother to say "Excuse me what happens in my mind at that moment? Where does my mind go? The impulse may be that on the um, bodily level I might react to you <laughs> right <laughs> possible I've seen it happen <laughs> I may have even done it um, on the verbal level, I might respond with some choice words. I'm sure here in London you have your own special way of expressing. Uh, or even, or, or maybe in the mind. These are three different levels. So The yogis are concerned on these three levels. Body, words, mind. The body is the easiest to control. The words are the second easiest to control. And the mind is the most difficult to control. Right. Uh, taking it to those different levels is part of the practice of bhakti. Trying to Trying to, you know, okay, I don't hit the person, but I can't stop myself from calling them some name. Or, or I don't hit the person, I don't call them a name, but still I can't, like, I, I resent the way that they behave, behave towards me. The real yogis, they're not rocked by it at all. Not even in the mind, you know. So, so this application of the buddhi, I, I, I want to tell just one little story. And we could just think about how this works. You ready? Okay, and this is a story of a of a person, a man. He's walking down the street, right? And as he's walking down the street, uh, everything's fine in his life, uh, you know, externally. Uh, he, let's say he is on his way to work, or maybe he's coming home from work. And as he's walking across, as he's walking down the street, he looks across the street to the other side, and he sees there's a store there. And he sees in the window of that store there's a cardboard cutout. And the cardboard cutout Shaped like an attractive woman in a bathing suit, and on the bathing suit is the logo of a particular brand of alcohol. And the shop is a is a, a liquor store. Is that what you call it here? Liquor store. Off
2: license. What do you call it? Off license. Off license. <laughs> <laughs> no. Did you know that? <laughs>
1: I wish you wouldn't have told me. I wouldn't have, if I ever wanted one, I wouldn't have been able to find one. Can you, know, you show me the liquor store? What are you talking about? Okay, so he sees an off-license. And it's within, that, within that, he sees a cardboard cutout. You probably have a different name for that too. And, uh, and so he sees that image. Now that image was designed very intentionally. right? Because when he sees that, that shape, that feminine shape, it triggers up ideas that are stored in the subconscious mind, in the hard drive, right? Ideas of happiness, ideas of pleasure, right? And because it's tied in, that, that experience is, is, has been tied to the particular product through the logo, he's thinking of that, that product being connected to that feeling, right? And even certain memories may be subtly or not so subtly arising from the subconscious mind, and they're rising up to the random access memory and he's beginning to engage with them, right? On the level of the manas, he, he's feeling a certain feeling, a certain attraction. He's remembering, like let's say I was the life of the party one day back in the past, right? I had that product. I was drinking it. There's music playing. There were girls there. There were other guys. And I was kind of in the center of it and everything was seen like there's a lot of pleasure going on. I remember that. I remember that feeling. It's coming up again so he, he's going through some of this um, experience. And he's beginning to think, yeah, maybe I ought to cross the street. Maybe I'll walk in there, buy that product. And he gets to the corner, and he's about to cross. Right. So we've seen that that image, it's just a piece of cardboard. But just the shape of that image and, and the, the, the ink that has been um, printed on that image, it's not even real, right? It's not a real woman or anything like that. It's just a piece of cardboard. But just that image has entered into his eyes and it's triggered things in, in the impulsive mind and even feelings within the ego. It's drawn up information from the past, from the subconscious memory, and it's got him moving in a certain direction. He's not in control anymore. He's following the programming of the mind, right? And, and, and so he gets to that corner. And he has to wait for the light to change. And as he's waiting, other information starts to come up from the subconscious mind. Other thoughts, other feelings. Feelings like, yeah, there was that time when it was the life of the party and everything seemed to be going great. But there are other times too. Remember the time I made a fool of myself? I vomited all over everyone. I was like collapsed. Everyone was looking at me like I was an idiot. You know, He may go through, remember that time I crashed the car? I almost died. I injured an innocent person. Person, yeah. Well, what about that time? And then, then, then this one thought comes up and this one's like heavier than, than all the others. This thought that was stored in the subconscious. He wasn't thinking about this thought when he was walking down the street. It was only that image that kind of triggered him and then it brought up first these other thoughts, but now it brought up this thought. That time where his wife sat him down for a talk. And she said, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you but if you don't get your drinking under control, then this marriage is just not going to work. So you have to do something. And the weight of that feeling, the emotion of that, of that feeling, it was, it was, he wasn't engaging with this thought at all. It was in the hard drive. But now that thought's come up and it's, he's engaging with it in the, in the random access memory and he's feeling it. He's also feeling on the ego level what that felt like. He felt like a disappointment, right? He felt like he wasn't the person that he should be And that feeling was very uncomfortable. So while he's waiting at that corner, and that feeling came up, the reasoning kicked in. If you step, you can't step into that liquor store, into that. What do we call it again? Off license. Off license. You can't step into that off license and not um, slip back in. If you if you make this decision, you are very likely to end up back where you were, and that's not where you want to be. So even though there's this idea of pleasure, and you might even enjoy some pleasure from the experience, it's not the right thing to do. It's going to cause you more pain than it will pleasure. Turn yourself around, move in the right direction. He makes that decision. He keeps walking down. Right? He almost fell into it. Right? Okay. This gets back to the earlier question. Now he—that's like clicking on one video. And that kind of video is going to come up again. He made the right decision. The next time he's walking down that street, it's going to be a little bit easier to make the right decision again. And he's going like this for a week, for two weeks now. He's really, he's built up some inner strength. At first, he would look by that, and he would say, I'm not going to even look in that direction anymore. I don't even want to see that image. And then he got, he got to the point where it's like, that image can't harm me. I'm okay. I'm, I'm fixed in my determination. Right? Then he began to see the same image, the first time he saw that image, he thought, pleasure, right? There's happiness there. Now when he walks by the exact same image, he sees it through the same eyes, but he's seeing it through different programming in the mind. Programming that he is consciously coded in there, strong into the, into the intellect. When he sees that image, you know what he sees now? The thoughts that immediately wrote up, rose up in his mind in the past were pleasure, happiness, fun. Now it's like what he sees is advertising agency, right? An advertising agency put that there to try to convince me to buy that product, but I don't need to listen to them. Right? Same eyes, right? Same mind but mind reprogrammed. And now he's got now he's actually free. Right? Now now he actually can begin to determine where he wants to go, how he wants to live and make choices that can lead to his liberation, to his freedom. like that. So that's kind of what, this is what the yogis are showing us. We all have that potential. We can enrich and strengthen the intellect through contemplation, through reading Bhagavad Gita, discussing it with friends. And if we do it every day, it begins to become the algorithm of our mind. Those kind of thoughts rise up naturally. Healthy thoughts, powerful thoughts, well constructed thoughts based on truth that can actually set us free. That's the goal of the yogi. So the the bhakti yogi is trying to harmonize that mind, program that mind in such a way that it's in harmony with the nature of the self. And and, in this way, not only do we make good decisions, but internally there's no longer a tension between the mind and the self. If the self by nature is loving, devoted, kind, And and the mind has been programmed to selfishness, you know, and so on. I can reprogram the mind to now they're both operating on the same way. Now there's a link between the two. Now they're no longer at tension with each other. Now they're united. And what's another word for union? Yoga. Yoga. So that's the yoga of of bhakti, right? Through bringing my thoughts to um, healthy, um, beautiful thoughts of truth. And again, that can be through. Designed meditations and practices and reflections that can be through uh, sacred literature, sacred dance, sacred art, sacred theater, whatever it may be. By bring by by downloading that data into the mind, it begins to purify the subconscious mind. It purifies the the impulsive mind. It purifies the concept of ego. It purifies the uh, the intellect, and I can begin to move in and operate. Um, in a state of truth, and, in a st- and then that happiness that's underneath, I begin to feel that. The mind isn't blocking me from it anymore. It's accessible. So let me stop here, see if there's any questions. Prabhu, is there anything I've spoken about so far that you'd like to share on at this point? I'd love to hear any thoughts that you might have. Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Kavshtuba. I'm not sure what's the difference between the red pill and the blue pill. Whichever was the right one, I think I got it from your talk. The red pill is
1: the truth and the blue is the
0: illusion. Okay, I got the red pill. Well, in my thoughts about what to present tonight, following what you were saying, it just so happens that in the very beginning, I have the phrase, deliberate to be deliberate. You'll notice that it's the same word. It's spelled the same way in any case. It's just used differently. And the word deliberate has the word Libra. And as you know, perhaps from the idea of astrology, Libra is the pan scales. There's one on this side, one on that side, and you know, in a market you put a cauliflower on one side and a weight on the other side to see how much cauliflower you're actually getting. And the idea of deliberation is to weigh the consequences. In fact, that's one of the definitions of deliberation, is to look at the consequences of something. And the ancient wisdom literatures speak about this. In fact, in one of the Upanishads, the shriya Upanishad, there's this a, a statement in Sanskrit, Anyareva Hura Sambhavad, Anyara Hura I was thinking of that while you were speaking because it says that the sages have already deliberated on these points very carefully and they've presented it for our benefit. And that is that one result is obtained by letting your attention go into matter and just becoming captured by it, as you so eloquently described And the other is to focus the attention on the source of everything, Krishna. And it's a simple statement, but it says there's a difference. It's helpful to know, because in deliberation, we're preparing ourselves to go out into the world. As I like to say, uh, based on the admonition, I'm not sure if it's gotten to London or not, and that is, don't shop when you're hungry. Did you ever get that one here? Have you ever tried it? You end up throwing all kinds of things in your basket and it's like, da dee da dee da Someone stops you and is like, what are you going to do with all this? You live alone. (laughs) and You know that's going to spoil, right? Well, don't shop when we're hungry. Don't go out into the world before we consider these points that one result comes from this, another result comes from putting my attention into the lower energy, as you described. And it's palpable, it's something that we can measure, we can look back and the ancient sages say, do that, make sure you fill yourself up and become centered with this information, with this knowledge, with the experience of yourself before you go out and interact with the rest of the world. Otherwise, you'll just grab everything and throw it in the cart. And then you're gonna have a big bill to pay, Sometimes karma is described as a bill that you have to pay back later. It's like you got a bunch of stuff and now, wow, I'm living in a nice way but actually you have to pay for all that later. So better to uh, take time, deliberate first, and then be deliberate in how you interact with other people, with the world and so forth.
1: Thank you. Um, I just thought maybe we could take a little break. Maybe just if there's any questions... (laughs) That's <laughs> the is one of our favorite questioners. <laughs> well, it's a brilliant, brilliant talk, but this is really
2: stuck in my head. I don't remember remember <laughs> um, A lot of the things that we spoke about is about, in terms of happiness, is about things. So even the last kind of 10 minutes is about things you can buy and, uh, to make you happy. What about, how, explain how ram can work with attachments and, like,
1: because in terms of disturbance of the mind, First one because most of the disturbances come from relationships and attachments you have with other people <clears throat> uh, the question should I repeat the question That'd be great. okay <laughs> so the question was when it comes to attachments, how does that relate to the random access memory these so so the, the, thank you for the question um. That particularly the manas, or particularly that that impulsive mind. um, There's kind of there can kind of be a battle. It's it's not always like this, but sometimes, especially for the yogi, at least when they begin to practice yoga, it's a battle between the attachments that are programmed in the impulsive mind, the comforts that we seek, the pleasures that we seek. and the reasoning that this won't... Now I've got the knowledge that this is not necessarily beneficial. Which one's going to win? Right. It's like even like when you get up in the morning. How many of you wake up with an alarm clock in the morning? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, here's a question. When the alarm goes off in the morning, the, the impulsive mind's going to respond. Does it generally respond by saying, Oh, I love this <laughs> there's, there's no sound that I find more pleasurable than this alarm right now. I wish the whole day could just be this alarm sound going off. <laughs> right? So you, usually the mind responds by saying, "Oh, that sound! Why so soon? Did that sound have to go off?" Right? And then and then there's a, there may be a bit of inner dialogue. It's kind of like this, um, kind of like this um, uh, dramatic. Um, what would they call it? It's it's kind of like a theme that's common commonly used in, or like especially in like cartoons. Like there's a little devil, there's a little angel, right? Not that it's necess- necessarily can be, but it, sometimes there's a lower nature and there's a higher nature that's battling. And so the monists may be saying, the bed is warm and soft and comfortable, and it's definitely where you belong, right? On a, on a, on essential level, the pleasure is being found right there, and it doesn't want to have that interfere with, and, and the and the buddhi, the the intellect, may be saying, no, now is time to get up. It's important to get up. And the um. The, the mind's gonna come back. There's still more time. Right, you could hit that snooze button. Right, there's there's, there's there is time, you know, and. and the, 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 the buddhi is responding, no, 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 the time is quickly um, disappearing right now. You could be late again if you're not careful. You know, you'd be late to work. And, and so it goes back and forth like this. But sooner or later what happens is the buddhi wins. Because what it, it makes clear is that the pain, the suffering that you'll experience for losing your job will be far worse than the suffering of getting out of the bed. So you, you line the two up next. You put them on that scale, and you say, I'll take less suffering. And so then you get up out of bed, or you call in sick. <laughs> 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 if the monoswings. You call in sick. So so th- th- our attachments are playing out like this. You know they're they're they they um, they're there. When I was a monk, I, there was a fellow monk that had a he shared something. He was someone I really admired, and he shared this idea of going straight from buddhi into action without filtering through the manas. Right? Trying to learn that. You know, when I when I was a monk, I learned when the alarm goes off, you don't lie around. You jump up immediately. Right? Like, you, 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 I think most people kind of get habituated. Maybe we can lie around for a while. But the training was, your training was like that as well. That, that when the alarm goes off, you don't let your mind begin to speak to you. You just... Take control. The body takes control. The intellect, the, that that intellect takes control. I'm going to get up. And again, as you do it more, it be the 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 the, the monas begins to surrender. And and this is you know when Christian says that the mind can become the best friend, it means that the body can take it over and can program it in such a way where it begins to like what was previously austere. Right? What used to be hard for us. Now becomes pleasurable for us, and I think like some people are coming here because they they come here and practice yoga. Like people, I think when they practice yoga, they they learn that. Like I used to like to stay up late at night. I used to like to eat late at night. I used to like to go out to the bars or the clubs at night, and then I started practicing asana, and I began to appreciate the morning more, and I like getting up in the morning more, and I like to get up feeling like I've digested my meal from from yesterday, and I have clear thought, and my asana's better, and and you're beginning to cultivate a higher mode of existence. And your attachments are now becoming good attachments. right? So, so there's, there's nothing wrong with the manas itself, it's just the programming within the manas. And that, that buddhi can begin to program in such a way that it becomes not our enemy but our friend. That I like to rise up early in the morning. I like to sit down and do my meditation. I like to have a controlled diet you know, that's easy to digest and healthy. I'm happier when I'm doing that. You know, after a while, the mind's the the, the 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 impulsive mind is responding favorably to that which is favorable for us. Now the mind's become the friend. Is that okay? Thank you, Arshaw. Yes. Thank you so much. I did. Um, so we, we have the subconscious
2: mind, and some some things may happen, and then that brings that brings certain things up. But there are a large part of our unconscious, we're not even aware that that existed. Yes. It's like we don't know what we don't know. Like, so, I mean,
1: that, that seems to be an endless list of potential things. I it's just, not only this life, but it's previous life too. Yeah, right.
2: So, so when we're utilizing our intellect to process things, that takes time. That takes our existence in this world right now, in this body. So, yeah. How do you make sure that you process
1: everything? Okay, that's a great question. <laughs> so the question was, we don't even remember everything that we remember, right? That's why we yeah. call it the subconscious mind, and some of that stuff is so deep. And it can even go to previous lives. How are we going to make sure that we process all that information well? You know, is, is, that, is that... deal with it all? Yeah. Because otherwise something will come up and, and it we'll be in trouble. It so yeah. seems completely
2: new to you, but it was there,
1: obviously. Yeah. I would, I would share this. We have to start moving forward at some point, right? And get the momentum working with us. Because even memories and thoughts that are deeply hidden, we, we, may, we don't necessarily have to engage with them. Um, they may just kind of get lost, right? Um, but if we can be careful how we process information as it's going in, then when it comes back up, it's going to come back up in a way that's healthy. You know think of it like this: there are certain, even people that aren't yogis get that there are certain things we don't want our children watching on television or in movies. Therefore, they have this whole rating system, right? Generally, those things are violence and sex, because they leave very deep impressions, and, the, and children may not know how to process those impressions as they're going in. Right? For instance, let's say there's a mother and a daughter. And they are um, on a sidewalk, and there's traffic going by. And let's say there's a horrible accident, like a a car crash. It's a very violent scene, a bloody scene. Maybe someone even dies, or someone's severely injured. And the child just witnessed that. Let's say it's a young three, four-year-old child like this. right? That experience can be shocking. True. it could even bring back bad dreams. It could, it can, you know, it could um, make the child feel very insecure. At any moment, I could die. You know, the the parent realizes that the child doesn't have a sufficient intellect to process that that necessarily in a healthy way. So the mother sits down with the child and says, "I know we saw something today that was very scary." I've never been a parent. Maybe the parents here, you know, they're more familiar with this kind of thing. We saw some say it's very scary. I know it was scary. But I want you to know, you know, A, B, and C, I want you to know that you're safe. I want you to know that we're protecting you. You know, you're going to be okay. You know, they're giving a... Essentially what's happening is that the parent is using their buddhi, their intellect, to process that information for the child. So that it goes deep into the child, into their subconscious memory, it won't uh harm them or torture them it'll 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 be healthy when it comes back up in them right so now the child can not have bad dreams and walk down the street and not feel terrified as they're as they're walking so if we're careful how we process the information that goes in um then we're going to get the algorithms working in our favor do you understand like Sometimes the sexual um, examples are the clearest, you know, so let's say Let's say there are men that just objectify women And so as they're walking down the street, they're just looking at every woman and sizing them up You know like this one's attractive. This one's not this one's attractive. This one's very attractive. This one's not, you know That's how their mind works been programmed that way and it's been and, and, and so and there's so much that's encouraging them to think that way uh, through the different medias that we that we're exposed to and through the association that we keep. But if that person makes a determination, I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to be determined just not to engage in the, on that level of thought. Now I'm seeing the same forms, but I'm not coding those memories in the same way. You know, Even with beauty, it's like one, one man may see a beautiful woman and think he's only thinking in terms of the joy he would take in exploiting that form for his own pleasure. Another seeing the exact same form and say, very beautiful, but that's not meant for, for my exploitation. That's a creation of God. So they saw the same form, but they thought about it, or they coded it, or they processed it in a different way, and then it goes into the subconscious memory. You understand? So now th- th- those kind of images and those kind of thoughts are going to arise in a healthier way, a way where he doesn't become a slave to them, but in a, in a way that is actually even bringing his mind to God. And so this is called buddhi. This is what Krishna calls buddhi yoga, right? How 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 we engage the intellect in processing the information, and and the point I'm sharing with you is, we, the depth of our past thought, it's beyond what we could ever fully process. So let's just start getting the algorithm. Like the, the depth of what's on YouTube, I don't know how many billions of gigabytes. Of videos are, are on YouTube. I have no idea, but I don't have to. I just have to click on the good ones and I know that the, the, the good videos are going to come back up. You understand? Then I'll get in that good algorithm. So if we process them, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so, so let's not worry about every thought that we've ever had and every memory that's stored in our bank. Let's get our random access memory focused on processing information well and naturally our algorithm will start to get set in a healthy way.
0: Okay. Yes. I'm sorry? It's six. Okay. So, uh, that was alright? Um, yeah,
2: just a very brief point. Yes. So the point is not to get rid of all the subconscious things, but rather just to establish a framework whereby you can anytime...
1: Yes. And...
2: Oh. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> 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 okay.
1: I'd like to add an extra thought. Please that. add uh, many extra thoughts.
0: you may this, that there's a concept of overwriting. When code has been written, it can be overwritten. Written, it can be overwritten. So in the process of bhakti, rather than just ignoring code or moving in a different direction, the mantra itself is a antivirus. It's a system through which we actually... We, we, we put down a code. For instance, waking up example. In the morning, there's a way in which we may go straight to our booty and, yes, I'm going to get up. Of course, there may be a time, too, when I'm really depressed. There was some trauma in my life. Somebody died. Something happened. Uh, and then, you know, that might not even work because I'm depressed. And I wake up, it's like, oh, that discipline didn't work. For in bhakti, there's this concept of Excitation, a scientific example, is if you take two tuning forks, there has to be two, otherwise tuning forks don't mean anything, because you hit one of them and then stop it, and you'll notice that the other one's still vibrating. And there's a, a principle called excitation, that a body of higher energy, it enlivens the one that's near it and brings it to a higher level. And with the bhakti yoga process, let's say you're waking up, one of the practices is immediately that you start the mantra. And you'll say the mantra as you're waking up and then that lifts you up. It overwrites the mind's uh, chaos or the way it's demanding that, you know, I want to be comfortable in the bed and so forth. And with, with the mantra, there's a way... As with code, it's, when it's overwritten, the other code doesn't go away, but it gradually dissolves. It just becomes no longer uh, relevant. It doesn't have the same um, power that it had before because, of, because you're introducing a higher energy. And you depend on that rather than your own determination just to have willpower to overcome it. Because sometimes even if you know what to do, Uh, there may be circumstances in which you can't do it anyway. But the mantra helps. Mm. Just that. Okay, that's pretty good. Secrets for controlling the mind. So as Koshtuba laid out the framework for us to understand how it all works, maybe there's a few tips, something that's practical. After all, as my good friend and scholar Radhika Rahman, who's the chairman of the religious and philosophy, studies of religion and philosophy at Utah State University said to me recently that a philosophy that makes the head spin, that impels us to move forward in our life, that doesn't have an on-ramp, that's not accessible, is considered by philosophers universally to be not valuable at all. Because we don't want to be stuck in Idealizing our life and thinking what might be we actually want to start somewhere and customer Prabhu your answer in the last part of How to actually do that, you know and immediately? Start dealing with what we have right in front of us I always find to be extremely helpful because there's a way in which I notice in myself that if I can't do everything I want then I don't do anything and with a Vedas teach us, Vedas meaning the ancient wisdom literatures as a whole, they say that actually the smallest start can make a huge difference because when our intention gets aligned properly and we take a step forward, there's a change that takes place in us and in the world itself. And we may notice it in people around us who know how we generally react to things. And when we don't, they'll be surprised that what happened to you? So these ideas, I think the picture goes well with what we we're talking about. There is a sort of automation to our lives that comes through the programming of our minds. And I talked already and let the cat out of the bag about choose deliberate practice over luck. There is a way in which I can cast my fate to luck in the world and think that well, whatever happens, happens, and maybe I'll get lucky someday. And it used to annoy me, Uh, one of my relatives used to always preface everything he said by, if I ever win the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) And I always felt that that was not a very practical way to think. And that I'd noticed in... Various aspects in my life. I actually had to do something for instance in athletics I would actually have to go out and do the work every day and the sooner I started and the more consistent I was then the more effective I'd be when the day came than then when I had to perform and in academics as well anything that we know of there has to be a sense that I, I Have something a path that I'm on now. So this idea of choosing deliberate practice This is one of the great miracles of being a human. We can deliberate and we can decide to go on a new track. We can say, I don't want to be the same today as I was yesterday, and we can actually start today. That's an exciting prospect. And fortunately, there are intelligent sources of knowledge to help us along. My teacher used to say, there's two elements that you need in order to make progress. That is, you need to have knowledge and you have to have practice. If you get the knowledge and then you can put it into practice and do it deliberately, then life's quite exciting. No matter where I'm starting from now, I know what my future is gonna be because I can understand. Just as, for instance, when we have some ailment and we go to the doctor, if we trust the doctor, for instance, uh, you go in and see a diploma And you've done some research, and the doctor's been around for 30 years. People have good things to say and so forth, that this doctor is effective, knows what she's talking about. Versus if you go in and the person prescribes some immediate surgery, and then you say, where did you get your education? You say, not like that. It's more like YouTube kind of stuff. (laughs) You might flee from that place. But if you go to a doctor who has the credentials and she prescribes you some medicine and says, you take this for 11 days, not for nine, for 11, and you take it and you have a sense that even though I don't feel better immediately, there is a way in which I trust that I will be. And maybe it's the sixth day, or the seventh day, eighth day, or even the 10th day that you start to feel a glimmer of hope because you're improving that you realize, oh, it works. But even before that, you have a sense that I trust that it will work. And so being deliberate by finding out a a source of knowledge that you trust, that you can follow the practice, a way to outsmart a genius anytime is to have a better plan and to follow it. So this is one of the ways of being deliberate besides weighing consequences. It's so helpful to have that in mind in this Algorithm that if I do this, the story you gave about the person uh, grappling with the image and then the addiction to a certain substance and and these types of ideas, I knew that would happen sooner later and that 's what happens in our minds also, right? Everything's clear, and then all of a sudden, emergency <laughs> you did something <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Bad. Okay, so deliberate to be deliberate. I wanted to see, wanted you to see it because it was a moment of uh, great exaltation for me when I saw it. It's the same word. <laughs> I love these kind of things. Obviously, so uh, harness the power of showing up. Touch the pavement. That's not the picture I wanted. Actually, uh, one of the Uh, Some of the work that I do is I introduce people to the very um, purifying process of going out and and meeting people uh, in various places around the world and just learning how to interact with them and uh, discuss uh, topics like Bhagavad Gita. I've been doing it for a long time and I really enjoy it. I've been to cities all over the world and for instance I was in Watford recently. And, and Watford, I just um, took advantage of the fact that it was a city with a lot of people and met people on the street and discussed uh, you know, their lives with him and also showed them the Bhagavad Gita. As somebody, somebody did that for me many years ago. So sometimes there's a sense of uh, <clears throat> when I'm taking people with me to show them how to do that that uh, they feel like, well, what's going to happen? And I say, I don't know. So you never know when you go out in public what's going to happen. So I have this routine that we do. And I say, uh, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is touch the pavement when you get out there. And then you're done for the day. We'll go out and touch the place where where we're supposed to go. And after that, you're finished. So I couldn't get a picture fast enough. But I do have pictures of groups that we come out. And we take a picture of us touching the pavement. It becomes a ritual. And this is also a way to start a practice is... Don't say you're going to do the whole thing. Just go in there and touch the pavement. Just say, I'll just show up. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not going to perform or I don't expect myself to I'm just going to see what happens. And this is one of the ways to overcome some of the hesitancy of taking up the practices that I'll name in a moment. Another concept, first I'm giving some concepts that inspire me that I read in one of the commentaries to the Srimad bhagavatam that coach stuba was talking about earlier it's a unusual book it's got uh, uh, poetry and it's got very serious teachings and combinations of philosophy and and uh, love letters uh, written uh, you know in antiquity and in one of the commentaries there's a statement by a sage that uh, wrote about the the Srimad Bhagavatam thousands of years ago. His name was Sridhar Swami. And he said that uh, the duty of the person who is to inherit from somebody, what's their singular duty? Stay alive, one way or another. So he said similarly to those who are taking the practice of yoga very seriously, Your first duty is, somehow or other, stay alive. Take progress over perfection. Don't think you have to uh, do everything, but somehow or other, stay alive. And it's not always linear. We'll go through many different changes in our lives and encounter various kinds of obstacles. But keeping that in mind, staying alive, if you were around for it or if you heard about it, there was a song, Staying Alive. That often comes into my mind. And I think that's what they were talking about. So one of the first concepts I'm going to talk about seems innocuous enough because it's toleration. And I heard my teacher once say, when somebody you love passes away, what's the one thing that you can do? Tolerate. There's so many instances where when we tolerate, we get a fruit we weren't even expecting. And in the Bhagavad Gita, if you do a quantitative study, if the amount of times Krishna talks about toleration, you'll notice that it is a lot. He talks about various ways to tolerate the environment, tolerate the way the body's changing. Even he talks about tolerating death, which always caught my attention. It's like, how do you do that? So there's a law called the Law of Diminishing Intent. The first time I ever heard about that was when I was studying accounting, and they were talking about collections. And in collections, when when you're supposed to collect the what's due, they show a graph, which is indicative of the law of diminishing intent. Then, diminishing intent on part of whom? Would you say the collector or the person who's supposed to pay? (laughs) Right. That's correct answer. So after some time goes by, the person is like, well, do I really have to pay it back? And it's like, no, I really don't owe you anything anyway. There's uh, the intention drains out. And so it's a law. And the longer you wait, the less the intention has its pull on you. So this works in dealing with the various urges that might come up and also annoying situations, or even worse than annoying, is to tolerate, and over time, they also diminish. There's a way in which situations change, everything turns out, and you don't have to be so impulsive. I heard that Napoleon used to wait three months before he opened his mail, because he realized that most problems were solved by the time he did. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a way in which... Uh, people sometimes react to situations like, yeah, well, it has to be now. But if if you don't answer right away, then two days later, it's like, oh no, it's okay. It's, it was all solved. And there's so many of those instances in our lives where things seem so dire and uh, and emergent in our lives. And, and if, if you wait a little bit and don't overreact to them, then they diminish over time. So this is a principle from the Bhagavad Gita. Another uh, in the Analogy and tolerance is the orchid. How many here are orchid fans? Quite a few. Okay, so let's hear it for the orchids. <laughs> <laughs> I once saw a book. It was on a shelf somewhere, I think, used bookstore, and it said, uh, "Here are ten house plants that even you can't kill." <laughs> that book was for me. So orchids. Uh, our good friend uh, Jamuna who has uh, a farm near where we live and is good at all kinds of things that have to do with plants and animals Jamuna who owns uh, happy girl she's a really powerful entrepreneur many of you know Jamuna right she's with the sages so Jamuna maybe you don't know how great she is but we kind of do because she's part of our community Uh, I mean, she doesn't always advertise all her accomplishments. She seems like Little House on the Prairie, but she's a high-powered entrepreneur and has um, great accomplishments in in devotional service and also in the business world and so forth. So she once told me that her mother is a orchid collector, and she told me the secret of orchids, tender, loving neglect. Orchids don't like to be touched or fussed over or overwatered and so forth. So find a nice little corner, not too sunny and not too dark, and just leave it alone. And in a similar way, when there's ways that we're interacting with the world, we can remember the orchid and how we deal with the orchid, which is, well, this is on the quiz for your SAT, tender. It has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Tender, loving neglect. There's a way in which when we neglect those, uh, let's say if it's a bad habit or if it's an urge, there's ways in which we can uh, decide ahead of time, be deliberate, deliberate about it and, and just think, well, I'll just ignore it. After all, uh, we procrastinate. Well, let's say I procrastinate uh, in various ways. Anybody else here want to admit it? There should be a university major just as there's there's mathematics <laughs> what <laughs> a lot of, too too many lectures well, maybe they wouldn't show up there's there's mathematics and there's applied math right so there's procrastination and then there's applied procrastination so there's a way in which we can use our tendency to procrastinate for good which means that Way, ways in which the the world seems to assault us or our senses demand certain things that are unreasonable and just use the same principle that you might with things that seem like they're a little too lofty for me. How am I going to write this paper? Maybe I'll put it off tomorrow. So we can deal with other kinds of habits and uh, assaults from the world in the same way. Tender love and neglect. And uh, I also heard, just to keep... Uh, uh, hit parade of analogies going that uh, justice delayed is justice denied. I heard that once in some interview somebody was talking and I thought, oh, that's very interesting because delay tactics, some people are famous for that. They'll get in all kinds of legal trouble. And it's like, no problem. We'll just delay it. It's also true in uh, paying taxes. The accountants legally talk about deferral they just put it off until you don't know that much, and so it's it, in a similar way: urges delayed are urges denied. Don't say that no, we're not doing this. But just say, okay, I understand who you are and what you want from me, but not right now. You can do that, right? And that's that's a technique. That's yeah. Right? yeah, Rather than confronting yeah. it, like that's I'm what you saying Yeah. Yeah, just start right now, just for instance, I noticed this with uh, eating. Let's just say that you don't want to eat as much as, as you're doing now on a regular basis. And then instead of at every meal, and just saying, well, again, um, I'm going to uh, cut way back. There's a way to, to cut back in a, in a reasonable way by saying, well, I'm just going to eat later. Or, or I'll eat just a little bit now. But remember, I have to eat later anyway, so that's okay. You can remember that, you know, if I just put it off, right? Oops. If I just put it off, then it's going to be uh, a different entity I'm dealing with later. So delay tactics are helpful. And the next uh, category, but before I go to the next category of yoga of the tongue... (laughs) Is there uh, any reflections anything that stuck with you from toleration? Yeah. It's just about
2: not fighting. Um, because I'm in the habit now, I think I'm in that conflict stage of I know like the way you're like the path and you know, I had a practice and I fell out of it. Um then I know it's how unwell my mind was and then now I'm back. But I do feel like I'm yeah, Tolerance doesn't mean like... Like being like, no! <laughs> it means you're just being kind enough to yourself to be able to deal with it and then it usually passes, really. Yeah. So the,
0: um, the of everything. Yeah. And it, it's a, a more of a, a gentle approach rather than being militant about it. Mm-hmm. I love what Kashtuba Prabhu was mentioning and it goes with this, this idea of being observant. Mm-hmm. There's a concept... Called shakshitva. It's a state. Uh, shakshi means a witness, and shakshitva means to be in a state of witnesshood. So standing back and watching what's taking place here. If you've ever seen something like um, Koshtuba Prabhu mentioned earlier about uh, jostle being jostled on a train and somebody sort of banging into you, and then ah. If you've ever watched one unfold in front of your eyes, watching two people, it just becomes sort of a fascination. What's going to happen? (laughs) So if we become, if we're aloof, aloof is a nice word, it means we kind of stand back from the scenario, and and even in our own lives, it's like, well, how is my body and mind going to react to this? We can sort of watch it from a, a distance and see, okay, how's this going to happen? And we feel a little detached from it. Any other reflections? A reflection is just something you heard that kind of stuck or resonated, and you just want to put it back out because it amplifies it. Yes? Sometimes I feel that these
1: techniques will be very useful for me, but I feel this internal conflict where I want to be principled. I want to do something out of
2: principle. And this feels like a trick, right? Even though I would benefit a lot from this. So how do I resolve that? How do I
0: step out of that militant, not serving me and accept this? Well, one way is to categorize what's going on in your life. The, in the red pill, blue pill, and apparently you're supposed to take the red pill, right? So there's, as Kashuba probably said earlier, there's two categories of energy that we're dealing with in our lives. One is the category of, here's my present life, and if you walk in to take an interview somewhere, and they say, where are you from? And you say, I'm from the spiritual world. And I'm spiritual spark. You're not <laughs> going to get the job. <laughs> and on the other hand, so there's a way that we have to, we, we do have to act in the world and be ethical and so forth and deal with it. At the same time, we can separate ourselves and notice that ultimately we're not part of the world. Therefore, the consequences that, are unfolding in my eye, uh, before my eyes, my life situation. If I'm principled on a higher level, which is really the theme of the Bhagavad Gita, there's a way in which Arjuna is giving a lot of resistance to the, the, the battle, which is his duty. He has to stand up for Dharma because there are people being violated. And he's one of the people that has the strength to be able to deal deal with it. He's been trained just for this situation. And when it comes time for it, he says, well, wait a minute, war is bad and uh, it disturbs society and so forth. And then Krishna says to him, there's a higher principle that you have to work on here. That first of all, you have to do your duty and, and go ahead and do it. But then he brings a different perspective to him and he says, When you're engaging in your duty and doing what you're supposed to do, at the same time, you can be unmotivated. And he gives the example of how to work in the world and not be entangled in it by giving the example of a lotus, which is called Padmaja in Sanskrit. And Padma means mud. It's surprising, too, because the lotus is so beautiful and elegant and revered as one of the best of God's creations. And then where was it born? In the mud. And ja means to be born. So then the flower grows out from the bottom of the pond and it comes up to the top. And if you observe lotuses, you'll notice that they're impervious to water, nor are they muddy. And so there's a way that Krishna says when our internal... Uh, when our intention is, is clearly aligned. He says, Brahmanya Daya Sangam Chakva We're not claiming that, that anything I do in this world belongs to me. I'm doing it as my uh, duty. Then I don't uh, become entangled in it. So there's a, there's a way in which we can keep the higher principle. Of understanding that uh, my ultimate goal in life is spiritual and we can go ahead and do what we have to do in the world but not become fully entangled in it. I'll give you another example that my teacher used to give as a bank teller. bank teller does his or her duty by counting the money and putting it in the drawer, right? Say yes. yes. And if the bank teller then one day decides I'm gonna take one dollar off the, one pound off the top and put it in my pocket, is that okay? No. No, it's like, well there's millions there already. So there's a, a way in which one should think like a bank teller, which is to watch and see what my, what I can do in the world, what's my duty? And not try to do more than that. You can't control everything that happens. And that means be the bank teller, but don't claim the results. Don't become overly attached and try to uh, control the outcome in the world by being, uh, as Arjuna was trying to do, trying to avoid his duty by saying that there's I have a higher uh, duty to do. And Krishna said, no, you have an even higher duty than you're mentioning, which is... To attain your spiritual um, destiny, while at the same time doing your duty, which puts it into perspective, I hope. Oh yes.
2: I, I was thinking when you said that that just as a parent will, when you're trying to teach your child something, trick them to begin with, and
1: then eventually the child understands that it's for their better good. And they just do it on their own, and so um, sometimes my husband will say, "Somebody has to be the adult in the room." So sometimes we do just have to trick our mind until it's until it's trained. But it's not that you're not doing it out of principle.
0: Yes.
2: mind is saying, yes, but I now, right now I'm wasting time. I have to do something to continue like, uh, that time more productively. But sometimes, am I better to tolerate uh, the situation that's around you rather than just remove yourself from that?
0: This is an excellent point. And it goes to the idea of the positive world that we were speaking about earlier. I like to use the example of a number line. Number line has, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. negative numbers on one side and then it comes up to Zero. zero and then on the other side. So if we were to look at it in another way, our work in the material world when we're motivated for the result and we're attached to the bodily concept of life and material gain and so forth, we're working and it looks like we're getting into higher numbers, but those are higher negative numbers. And this is called karma. I'm working, I'm working, and I'm trying to get myself adjusted here and I'm making progress and then I look at what's all this debt doing here? It's like, well you're in the negative side of the line. And then there may be an impulse that I'm gonna come back to neutrality, which is moving all the way up to zero, but zero, zero after all. So then there's the positive side. So my teacher once said yoga means plus. So when you move into the positive side then you have ways that you're counting what you do you're as motivated and uh, as amb- and ambitious as somebody might be on the negative side but you've moved to the positive side. So what I'm saying is that there's a way to uh, be motivated and not waste it and not want to waste a second. And actually there's a there's a phrase for it which is called anarta kalatwam. means there's a mentality that develops in the mind of a spiritual practitioner. Is, I don't want to waste any time in the negative numbers, nor do I want to sit at zero. But there's positive things to do in, in spiritual practice. So we can quantify those. And just like Kao Stuba brought up, he and his wife, uh, sit down together and read 80 um, 80 verses from the Srimad Bhagavatam. That's not easy to do consistently. You can do it once or twice, but to actually do it every day <laughs> over time, it takes a lot of motivation, right? But that's a spiritual practice. That's on the positive side of the number line. And if you, if you fill your life with more and more of those positive numbers, those positive activities, then... It's uh, the same kind of motivation you'd have wasting time, but it, you're doing something. You're engaging your senses. You're engaging your mind, but you're doing it in a positive way. You're not just sitting waiting for the urges to pull you back into the negative numbers. In fact, some of the greatest uh, teachers in the line that we come from, there was a song written about them and one of the verses says, and that is that they measured everything they did. as whatever you measure gets improved. And in spiritual life, you'll notice that there's a practice called japa, where practitioners will chant to themselves. They'll do the mantra and they count on beads. There's 108 beads. And not only is there 108 beads, but there's also a string of beads hanging from them that you pull down one every time you f- go around 108 times. And then you pull down the next one. So you count it. And... There's a lot of motivation because although you're going in a circle, I want to, I want to finish my practice. So that's positive. And, and you can have that same kind of drive and not waste any time, but you're doing it in the positive numbers. One more? Yes. Yes, uh, so the juxtaposition of the, the words is mostly for effect, but if... So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so neglect, we, we generally think of it as something negative, but I'm bringing up in cases where there's something that is pulling at us immediately right now, and if, we, if we're able to just not respond to it right away, this is called delayed gratification. Everything I said about tolerance could come under the category of delayed gratification. And there's actually studies done. I've seen the videos of them of kids that they're offered a cookie. And then they say, if you don't take this cookie while I walk out of the room, then when I come back, then you get two. And then they go out and they watch the kids and they're kind of looking at it from, can see the whole process going on. And then some of them actually they can't wait and they just start eating the cookie. And others they wait and it's a big celebration when they come back, now you got two. That type of thing, that uh, delayed gratification and they've studied that those who are able to delay gratification are much more successful in everything they do. So the idea of tender loving neglect is it's, you're tender. You're doing it for the right reason. You're neglecting something that is, that is beckoning to you to waste your time, to injure yourself, to pull yourself into the bad habits that you know you don't want to go into. So it's sort of that, that idea of it's tender, it's loving, but still uh, not right now. Okay. A few more ideas and that comes to something very practical I want you to check and see if you have a tongue you want to check in we might forget I mean I take for granted everything I have practically until I notice it and I put my attention there and if I think about my tongue it's mighty the tongue is mighty and I'll tell you how mighty it is in the Teachings of yoga. There's a verse from thousands of years ago that says that yoga begins with the tongue So I'm not talking about your tongue being able to do downward dog or something like that But it's more about the tongues Main, main occupation or two main occupations one is to speak and the other is to taste things And so the tongue is known in yoga as a gateway sense. As the tongue goes, we go. And if you notice what a rudder looks like, a tongue is very rudder-like. It determines the direction we're going to go in our life. So what do we do with our tongue in the yoga of the tongue? One of the ways to engage the tongue that's highly recommended is to use the tongue to... To chant a mantra we sang the mantra a little while ago and there are various ways that you can engage the tongue in saying mantra so I'll say the mantra you can just notice when you say it that your tongues working you can repeat Hare Krishna Hare Krishna Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna. Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare Hare, Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Hare Rama. Hare Rama. Rama, Rama. Hari, Hari. So it's simple, but the power of using the tongue for the mantra means that the vibration itself goes into our ear, and then there's a transformative effect. There are various levels of speech mentioned in the Vedas, and they emanate from, first of all, from us, the living being. And as they come up through our energy centers in our body, they ultimately come to the voice box. There's an energy center here, and then we're able to speak something. Our speech is very creative. In fact, if you'll notice during the pandemic, nobody went anywhere for the most part. Did you all notice that? So how did anything get done? Did anything get done during the pandemic? It was some of our best years in some of the projects I've been working on. But how, how did it get done? Zoom, Zoom. yeah, Zoom. But what did did we do on Zoom? We just talked and things manifested. So my teacher once talked about like reverse engineer how a a skyscraper building gets built. You think about it, that's the energy as as thought, it's a thing and then it builds into an intention and then you express it through your voice box. So what he said was all the ingredients for the skyscraper building already exist. You're not creating anything new, you're just assembling them all. So whatever we speak about, that can assemble the various ingredients. We'll say, I wanna build a skyscraper building. Okay, let's talk to an engineer. And the engineer will get on the Zoom and say, here's what we gotta do. We gotta get the cement and (laughs) here's the stuff, here's the plan. All gets talked about, and the vibration that comes out then manifests or brings together all of these ingredients. So, there's a way in which all the kinds of spiritual paraphernalia and intelligence that we need, the theory is, comes from the mantra. There's a vibration. As Kaushthuba said, there's two different kinds of energy there's spiritual and material. So, the mantra itself comes. the spiritual energy. And when you use your tongue to make that vibration, then the various intentions you have to improve yourself, to uh, connect to your uh, higher consciousness or your higher consciousness to the super soul, that all becomes possible by using the tongue. There's also another way that we can Notice something about ourselves, and that is uh, don't say everything you're thinking. I have a, a way of thinking about it, and I say, say 20% fewer things than your mind tells you to say today. And I always notice that the chatter that goes on in my mind and then comes out through my voice box, and then it perpetrates the types of random thought, it gets manifest in my life if I'm able to quell that to some degree and just notice that, oh, my mind wanted to say something, there's an urge to speak, but then I just don't say it. Or I replace it with something positive, like the mantra, which may not always work in certain circumstances, like in certain contexts. But the point is, uh, this is a kind of uh, gateway point for all the senses, and it actually helps to control the mind when we start to notice that if I don't vocalize everything I'm thinking and just impulsively say it, then I start to notice. I become the watcher of how my mind is working. And I'll, I'll, I'll notice a lot about myself. It's a kind of way of becoming self-realized realized by being self-observant. And it starts with the tongue. So you can try that if you're in a conversation. And one of the ways the mind thinks is, this conversation is going on, but it's not enough about me. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? When this person stops talking, then I'm going to say something really valuable, and I'm just waiting for a way in. And they keep the thing going by saying, um, and odds, oh, like I can't get in yet. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, I just uh, rest the tongue and I'm careful about it, I'll just start to notice I'll be more objective. So this is one of the ways. That the tongue is helpful in controlling the mind. Another is to use the tongue to ask questions. I just uh, wrote a book. It's coming out in about a month and a half. It's called The Four Questions for a Better Life. And I just researched so much about questions recently when I was writing the book. And it was uh, precipitated by a statement that comes in one of the most important of all the vedic teachings in a book called the brahma sutra brahma sutras which are codes for spiritual advancement and the first one in the whole book says atato brahma jignasa which means that now that you're a human ask big questions don't ask uh, questions that are inconsequential that uh, don't lead you to your higher consciousness but ask about your ultimate good so when you use your tongue to ask questions that are helpful to you, that help to move you forward in spiritual life, then the answers will be forthcoming. And it's a powerful way to, c- to control the tongue is to notice what kind of questions we're, we're asking. Anybody would like to make a reflection or a question about the yoga of the tongue? Yeah. Yeah, just to like
2: refrain and think about um, what you're saying and the impact that it has on other people as well to be reflective of of it in your communication and how it does improve
0: communication as well. Yes, that's a nice point about how it affects other people because you might notice that one word is said in the wrong way or with the wrong emotion or intention to somebody it can ruin a relationship, one statement. And and it's almost impossible to take back. Once you say it, you may say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but the impression is still there. Our words are very, very powerful. So when we transform our speaking into a, a spiritual discipline and use mantra and we're careful about what we say, we we have, there's an immediate effect on our life. So you can try that. I mean, you can you can notice it in, even in the next conversation that you have. And and monitor what you're saying, and also practice uh, the mantra. Any other reflection?
2: Uh, I'm reading uh, next of instruction at the moment uh, with uh, Ganga Mangshri mm. in Tucson. Uh, every Monday we get together. And uh, we really struggled with the first two chapters, uh, because it talks about actually controlling the tongue. This has just brought it back actually to a real sort of application where I am thinking of oh, my mundane life and uh,
1: away, uh, um, it's really helpful.
0: It just gives a framework thinking, how, how, how can I sort of work the tongue properly? So thank you. Yeah, it's an esoteric book, and it ends on a very, very high level. But the first word in the book is vachovegum, and it says, learn how to control the urges of the tongue. Again, there's, there's the gateway sense of the tongue, right? Yeah, thank you.
2: Principle is, is that thought? And I think there's a verse in the Bhagavad maybe about you
1: know
0: only only say what is valuable, pleasing, or austerity of speech. Yeah, yeah, it's an austerity of speech, and says be truthful. Your speech should be truthful, beneficial, and avoiding speech that offends. it is... Yes. At the same time, there's... In the Yoga Sutra, there's what's called yams and niyams. There's things that you do to prepare yourself to control the mind. So one of the admonitions that potentially Muni gives for the Yoga Sutra is don't lie. Because when you lie, then you can't control your mind because you'll be thinking of the consequences all the time oh shouldn't i said that and how am i going to hide this and how am i going to make up for it and your mind won't be peaceful so truthfulness in speech is an important principle as we entangle ourselves every time we shade the truth or embellish it why did i say six it's only five five's not good enough for them you know so being careful in that way is, is really important also Yes. Any practical tips for to become a master asker? Mm Mm-hmm. How to become a master asker. That's, we can remember that when we're using the question mark, as I like to say, is the most powerful of all punctuation marks in any language. You'll notice that the question mark is shaped like a hook. It pulls to us whatever information we want. In fact, question comes from the word quest. If you look it up in the etymological dictionary, it says the quest for the Holy Grail in times of knighthood. And so a question's a big deal. And remembering ahead of time that my questions are pulling to me the kinds of things I'm asking about and using it judiciously, being careful about using my questions. For instance, two of the most important teachers in our line in devotional service were running a government. And then when they met their teacher, who is Chaitanya, uh, over 500 years ago, they said, enough of this being a billionaire stuff and controlling everything. We wanna follow this higher path in life. So they met with him and one of them asked a question or a couple of questions that are very important for those who are engaged in a spiritual journey. He said, uh, people say that I'm highly learned because I know seven languages and I know how to manage things and I'm wealthy and so forth. He said, but I'm so foolish I don't even know who I am. So the first question he asked to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is who am I? And then he said, and why am I suffering? Mm -hmm. And asking questions which are consequential to our life, knowing that the question will pull to us the answer. There's something mystical about that. Ask and it shall be answered. There is a universal witness even within our heart. And when we seriously inquire and we remember that this is the main way that we advance in spiritual life is by asking questions. I mean, when's the last time I asked what's the purpose of life? The, and you know, if we stop on the cor- at people on the corner, as you said, and say like, "What's the main purpose of your life?" They're like, "What are you talking about? I'm late for work." <laughs> so, the very thought that questions pull to us are what we're looking for, what what we really want and being thoughtful about asking. That's what the the, uh, Brahma Sutra said, Tata Brahma Jignasa, ask about the biggest thing you can. Don't waste your questions on small things. So that concept helps. Yeah. What do you think?
2: Because sometimes there's a discrepancy, right? Yeah. Intention is not to hurt, but the person may end up feeling hurt by what you said or the
0: way you said yeah. it or a joke not taken as a joke, you know, like yeah. it's sometimes difference in perception. It's really interesting question. It's really interesting because it goes to sound vibration. That sound carries consciousness. Have you ever had anybody tell you, I don't like the tone of your voice? What does that mean, anyway? <laughs> My mom used to say that to us. I don't like the tone of your voice. <laughs> what are you talking about? I said what you wanted me to say. It's like, yeah, but not like that. And then it's very interesting that there's a way in which our, our the intention in our heart, it comes out in the, in the sound vibration. In fact, there's a point made by a great king named Prithu in the Srimad Bhagavatam. And he says that a person who's pure-hearted, when he or she speaks, the vibration is different. It transforms people. And there's also a way that uh, another teacher from antiquities said that spiritual, a spiritually advanced person can be judged by two things. You want to know what they are? Only three people want to know? Okay. One is steadiness, because you can't fake consistency. You can't keep showing up for something unless there's really something going on here. And the second one, he said, was this term called mukya prasad. So mukhya means mouth and prasad means grace. So he said, when a person who's pure-hearted speaks, in other words, pure-hearted means that your intention is correct. And when such a person speaks, then the vibration is like grace. Even if you're giving somebody some criticism, if the intention is right, then it comes out in a constructive way uh, to help. So the intention is extremely important. Nonetheless, dealing with humans is complex. (laughs) So we have to be really careful as we move in the world because... People can easily misinterpret what we say or do. They may realize it later what our intention was and really appreciate it. But I've found personally that you have to be extra careful. I, have very, I had a friend, he passed away recently, his name was Peter Burwash. He had Peter Burwash International. It was a huge tennis organization where they taught tennis all over the world. And uh, he was also a practicing yogi and uh, <clears throat> a very thoughtful person. And once he was telling me about his company, which is um, famous all over the world for the way he took care of his employees. So he said whenever he hired somebody, he always asked them, how do you like your criticism? When well, we need to tell you, you know, something to correct you, how do you, how do you like to take it? <laughs> like this, like that. So he would go out of his way. Because we're all sensitive. That's what it means to be a sentient being. We're very sensitive and we can take things the wrong way. So it never hurts to be very careful in dealing with people's feelings. They never uh, feel uh, put off when you go out of your way to make sure that they understood what your intention was, even if you have to restate it or be demonstrative about your good intentions. The other thing is don't speak when you're emotional. Uh, Our I have a friend who's in conflict resolution. He just retired, but he worked for the government for many years, resolving conflicts. And he gave me a little chart once that has served me well for many years. And it shows the inverse relationship between emotion and rationality. The more emotional I am, you may notice this. If you're emotional, somebody sends you an email, it's like, what are you talking about? You know, like, no, no, no. No, don't send it. Because <laughs> the next day he might look at it and say, oh, that was me? Our, our rationality goes down inversely, an inverse relationship to the, the amount of motion we have. So being careful how we speak when we feel that welling up within us, that urge, that, well, how dare you? Don't say it now. Wait till later. Be careful. Use your tongue very wisely and carefully. That way, you'll you'll gu- that's how you'll be guided through your life. Okay. Now, the next uh, one is something that is definitely something we can engineer in our life that makes a huge difference, and that is to upgrade the soundtrack of your life. Have you ever noticed that in motion pictures? Is that what we call them nowadays? Motion picture. So, they all have soundtracks. In fact, in the old days when there were silent films, they weren't silent. In the very beginning when there were films that uh, didn't have a soundtrack because there wasn't technology yet, they had somebody playing piano or organ. Mm. And they needed that to know what the emotion of the scene was. Otherwise... You know? Can you imagine like a horrific scene and then somebody's playing very cheery music? It's like, what? So every movie has its soundtrack. And our lives also have a soundtrack. And you, we can do well, say the ancient wisdom literature, is to look at what the soundtrack of our life is. What sounds are we letting in? Because sound is creative, and when it goes in, it is what... Most affects our consciousness. And there's a difference between material sound and spiritual sound. So, of course, as we just experimented, you can sing and you can play music and rhythm, but you chant mantra, you can spiritualize anything in this world. As my, my teacher used to give the example of an iron rod, and when you put it in fire and leave it long enough, then it becomes fire. So we can transform the various elements in our life by utilizing them for a higher purpose in service. But it's important to note that the Vedas make this very clear distinction between material sound and spiritual sound. And that's something that we can gradually change in our lives, and as we do, it will change our consciousness. So I like to say, if you don't like what you're being subjected to, Anybody
2: Yeah right yeah? now not right now, uh, not right now. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> um,
0: Then change the subject because that's what we can do and when we change the subject, then our lives also change and much of the subject happens by the sound vibration that's coming into us. so be aware of the fact that what you're subjecting yourself to if you may be I don't know who thought of it, of putting a television set on on the back of every seat in an airplane. I don't know who thought about putting a television set in the grocery stores when you're waiting in line, but I don't think it was a great idea. There's a way in which people are always engineering the sound vibration around them to create a certain environment. In stores, you'll notice that people don't like to walk in a store without a soundtrack. They may not notice the soundtrack but they notice when it's not there. In fact, I'll tell you something that I think is very interesting. And that is, there's a sound studio where a lot of musicians go to record music in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And because I guess they had piles of cash lying around, they decided to build a a curious chamber as an addition to this sound studio, which is a no sound studio. What does that mean? Anybody want to ask? <laughs> Thank you. Um, questions are the answer. So it's a it's a, a chamber that you go in, and there's no sound. Sound is me- measured in decibels, but when you go in the no sound studio, there's no sound at all. You can't even f- hear your footfall. You can't hear yourself breathing. You can't hear anything. So I got really fascinated with it. So I looked into that. And I found a couple of articles that were written by investigative reporters. And they both said the same thing. It's kind of shocking, should I tell you? It's the loudest place on earth. And in fact, they warn people before they go in, and it costs $70 to go in by the way, that most people don't last very long in there. They have auditory hallucinations. And this goes to what Kausha probably was saying about the ways in which we store all this information. Everything we hear goes in and it stays in there. And when we go in the no sound studio, it's so loud. They said they couldn't stay in there. Most people, the, the world record for staying in there was 40 minutes. Some people go 10 seconds and they're scratching at the door. <laughs> that was $70 for 10, 10 seconds it'll let me out. And so... That that sound vibration is within us, and the the spiritual sound vibration. This is one of the main points of the Bhakti Yoga practice. Is that you can reengineer the kinds of sounds you're hearing. This what is the soundtrack in your life, and then everything will transform from the inside out because of the sound vibration. It's very practical. It's something that you can do in your life. For instance, <clears throat> um, my wife and I have a home in California and we wired every room for sound. So like, you know, there's a central place and whenever I come home, she'll have something, you know, some spiritual vibration going in there. She's either listening to a spiritual lecture, like Wisdom of the Sages, or, or, um, or some kirtan, some spiritual music. And it's a big difference that walking in a house where you hear that, or what if there was CNN? telling you how the world's coming apart at the seams in every possible way. It's like, oh my God, what am I going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And then it's total anxiety. So we have the sound within us, and whatever we're taking in, that is uh, staying. So I have this uh, saying, uh, you are here. No, I didn't misspell it, or I did, but it's on purpose. So if you want to know where you are in your life, check out what you're hearing because that's who you are, your identity, what you're attracted to hearing, and also it's gonna determine where you're going. Is that a helpful equation? Good to audit and see what's the sound in my life. And this has a little placard in my neighborhood. We live in Burlingame, California. It's about 20 minutes from San Francisco. And this is a storm drain. You can see the little grill there on the right hand side. You know in the gutter system when the water comes down and then when it's raining it has to go somewhere, right? So on every one of them they have that that emblem that says no dumping drains to bay. So dumping means people might have some used oil or something and then they just think, well it doesn't go anywhere. You just pour it in this hole here. (laughs) just pour it in here and it's gone, right? (laughs) Not exactly. It goes to the San Francisco Bay. In fact, there's layers on the bottom of the San Francisco Bay of all kinds of toxic chemicals. And where do they come from? From these openings. People all over the place just let things go. So as I was walking along and I noticed them, I started thinking, yeah, my ears are kind of like that. They resemble these little storm drains. And I was thinking if I was to ever get a tattoo, I'd probably get them here, right above my ears, saying, no dumping, <laughs> drains to the bay of my heart. So there's a way in which the sound, whatever we take in here, if we dump in here, don't be surprised if it ends up in here and then it disturbs your sleep or it makes you think in very odd ways and, and your mind becomes disturbed and it, you develop weird habits, and so forth, because it's coming from what we're putting in here. So the positive thing is that besides not dumping, we can actually overwrite the sound that's already in our life and add this positive spiritual sound. A way to look at it is that the quality of the sound you listen to determines the quality of your life. And then there's mantra meditation. So let's just uh, try for a, a moment. Do you have any soundtrack we could uh, put on, any music, in a certain key that's just sort of neutral, and we can try practicing together just a few mantras and see what it feels like in doing uh, what's like called japa. We did kirtan earlier. So what I'll do is I'll. I'll start saying the mantra very slowly and I'll do half of the mantra, the Hare Krishna mantra with an exhalation and then I'll take a deep breath and then with the next exhalation I'll say the mantra again. In fact, if you could go online and find a uh, tampura. put a tampura C at, at, because I just thought a middle C is much easier for us to all resonate with. If you put in tanpura, T-A-N-P-U-R-A, it's an instrument. Ding, 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 ding. T-E, T-A-N-P-U-R-A, and pick a C. Put tanpura C there. Use that brown one on the down there. Is that a C? Uh, put in tanpura C. You can try this at home. Here you go. Hope the pictures are okay. <laughs> okay, let's try this. Sit up a little straighter than you were a second ago as when you bring your spine to attention it's like the mind thinks this is important. if you want to close your eyes and just exclusively meditate on the sound vibration of the mantra, you can join in with me after you see the pace that I'm chanting the mantra in. Hare
2: Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Krishna, Hare Krishna. Hare
0: Inhalation Hare
2: Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare, Hare. Hare. that
0: vibration enters your ears it resonates within your body and this spiritual sound brings revelation and it brings all the knowledge that helps us to discriminate as we move through the world and ultimately it helps us and brings us to see our higher self and how we're different from the material body and the mind. Just as when we can't see what's in the body, we can use sound technology like ultrasound, and you can see baby within the womb, all fingers and toes. We can't see what's in the ocean, but if we use sonar, it brings back clear images of what's going on that's beyond our vision. And the ancient sages say that the vibration of the mantra reveals our higher self very naturally and our connection to the super spirit and ultimately reveals to us the entire spiritual world as everything's there within the mantra and all we have to do is use our tongue our ears and vibrate the mantra and just be present for the mantra and it will take us by the hand and reveal our higher nature in due course of time we'll do one more mantra together rub your hands together bring some external sensation open your eyes and come back into the room and this mantra it brings this power into our life So the first thing in the morning you can try as an experiment don't turn on anything just when you become conscious that you're awake you're back in your bed back in your body then try this mantra before you stir before you even put your feet on the ground and you'll notice that it realigns your awareness to that, your purpose in life it has a special power that it brings to you and if you try practicing a little bit in the morning times especially before you go out into the world it gives you a sense of perspective and helps you to move about in the world feeling full and being able to participate in helpful ways rather than being needy and going out in the world. All this and much more is claimed about the the mantra. So it's something that you can experiment with and see for yourself. Om Tat Sat, which means the end. Thank you. (laughs) Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Hey! Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman.